VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, December the 21st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. We're looking forward to speaking with you this morning on a topic of your choosing. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long-distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So thanks to Linda Swain for sitting in for me yesterday. Still not fully rebounded here, so if my voice is a bit off, I apologize for that. But here we are, the 21st of the month, the magical winter solstice. So it's the shortest day, longest day of the year in the Northern Hemisphere. The daylight is going to get more and more of it every day right up until the summer solstice. So up until June 20th, the days will now be getting longer. Ancient cultures, just imagine when we had to, they were trying to tell time because of the sun and a, uh, on a dial. And then, of course, following the path of the sun across the sky, the length of the daylight, location sunrise and sunset. So what they did is they built these monuments in an effort to track it. So whether it be Stonehenge in England or the Torian in Machu Picchu, that's how they evaluated, adjudicated the sun and the amount of daylight received throughout the year. Okay, so the winter solstice. And on behalf of everyone in this neck of the woods, rain, rain, go away. And come back sometime in the spring. And I'm not asking or begging for snow, but the rain's getting on my nerves. Okay. So if you're planning on traveling around the province for the holidays, going home to see the family or visiting friends, make sure, given some of the stories we've heard in the recent past and some of the conversation about ice control and snow clearing, make sure you give yourself ample time to get where you're going safely. Talk about travel via air. The stories coming out of various airports in the country are unbelievable. Whether it be in Vancouver or notably Toronto, so a friend of mine told me a story yesterday. Someone belonged to him who lives in Los Angeles. Coming home for the holidays. A long way to go from L.A. to St. John's to begin with. Gets to Vancouver and, of course, the city brought to a standstill because of not a whole lot of snow. But in Vancouver, it's not built for the snow. You know, just imagine last night it was about negative or minus 16. Those single-pane windows and what have you, they're not designed to put up without those types of temperatures. But as we saw... The videos of cars sliding all over the place, and every single flight in and out was stopped for a while at Vancouver International. The one on Monday, I think 70,000 passengers were impacted in Vancouver. And talk about the two or 300 Newfoundlanders and Labradorians and their family trying to get home for Christmas and stuck in Toronto. It, of course, sometimes it's unavoidable when we talk about weather, but when the weather is nothing frightful in Toronto, but some of the aircraft and crew are stranded in Vancouver it will have an impact down the chain in various airports and, of course, at Toronto Pearson, which has been a bit of a mess for a while here now. But the passengers, they would ask WestJet, what exactly is going on? And given a variety of different reasons or excuses, one started with safety reasons, then someone else said it was maintenance, and then it was potentially no crew or aircraft itself. So here you are, you have your plans, maybe you got the kids in tow, be sent off to a, a hotel to be told you get an update in about four hours. Then the next thing they find out is their flight's not going at all. So delay 30 minutes to cancel. Some people are unable to rebook to the earliest Boxing Day. So I heard one guy, he's uh, thinking about taking him to court. Now, I don't know how successful that may or may not be. But he's in Toronto and decided that I'm not waiting because what happens if then De December 26th means no more flights again? So he's driving home. 
So he's gonna it's gonna cost him some twenty five hundred dollars with the rental of the hotels and food and what have you, and of course the time and frustration to drive all the way from Toronto and the ferry costs all the way to St. John's or wherever he's trying to go here in the province. But if you are someone impacted on that front, let's talk about it. You know, it may not be any fault of the uh, the airline. In this case, is WestJet. So if the aircraft and the crew are stuck in Vancouver, you would think, given the optics and just how the frustration may bubble over to someone who's a WestJet customer today, might not be in the near future. So whether or not there's a charter opportunity, bring some of that Christmas joy back to your customers, because just imagine being stuck there, all excited to get home, especially the kids. Maybe the parents can tolerate it, but the children to be stuck and not to be anywhere with any friends or family on Christmas Day. Brutal stories coming from those traveling via air. If you want to share, do it. And talk about traveling by sea. It was today in 1620 that the Mayflower Pilgrims went to shore at Plymouth Rock in Massachusetts, interestingly enough. All right, other issues. This is sort of a strange one, and we knew the federal liberals were long talking about single-use plastic. In this province, we've done away with the single-use plastic bag, the so-called Sobeys bag. And many people repurpose them for a variety of things. It would be the bag in your bathroom uh, garbage can and stuff like that. You, all, you know the deal. So now they've extended it again. So the ban includes the import and manufacture of grocery bags, cutlery, food service con- containers, stir sticks and straws. All right. So there's proven to be not an ideal solution with doing away with the single-use shopping bag, plastic shopping bag, and the new recyclables, or pardon me, the reusables that we are all have grown accustomed to. But of course, it comes with an environmental price as well. When we look at the plastic issue, so of course, if you're working at Oceana Canada, was uh, Anthony on yesterday as scheduled? Okay, so I missed the conversation. Plastic campaigner with Oceana Canada, uh, Canada says, uh, da 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 Every piece of plastic lasts about 100 years. Once the ban is in full effect, it will equal the removal of about 33 billion units of single-use plastics, which are normally used by Canadians. All right, so the single, the stir sticks and the straws that are now out there now, it's, they get a bit soggy, you know, they really truly do. But when we look at plastic, when are we going to turn our attention to the amount of plastic used in the manufacturing world and in the retail world? Just think about it. Go to a grocery store today, and you're quite likely to find one cucumber wrapped in plastic. Now, I know that's much more biodegradable plastic wrapping a cucumber, and then further think down the line to Christmas Day. And so you give out the presents, and someone gets a Barbie, and it is encased in impenetrable plastic. I mean, the overpackaging that we all see, add that into the consumerism and a bit of gluttony that we experience in North America, and there's your plastic problem. You know... People send me pictures of these uh, shopping bags, the reusable shopping bags, strewn wide and far. And, of course, that's just a litter bug problem as opposed to a bag problem. And it does take those single-use plastic bags forever to biodegrade in a landfill. But, again, it comes with some significant problems on the other side. But the government talking about how we use plastic as individuals and maybe some food retailers... But just think about it when you go shopping today to wrap up your Christmas holiday season shopping and just see the extraordinary amount of packaging, plastic packaging, that are on the shelves every single place you look. Maybe that's the big one. And then we use the three R's, right? It's the reduce, recycle, reuse. The one where the key focus is going to be to clean the place up is to reduce. It's fine to recycle and it's fine to reuse, but it's just the single amount of product that goes through each and everybody's hands in Canada, that becomes the big problem. we just got to see some way for the reduction to be the key R in the three 
ours. Okay. This story is not surprising whatsoever, and there's some work being done at the St. John's Board of Trade and at the Seniors Advocates Office regarding the numbers of people in retirement age who are actively looking for work. The research has taken about a couple of years to compile, and they say roughly 43,000 people aged 55 and older have gone back out to try to rejoin the workforce. Some of it is they want to stay busy, want to contribute, but you know full well some, if not most, of the 43,000 in that uh, category they have to work. They have to get back out there. Their pensions aren't cutting it. Because you see it, I see it, we all feel it, that some of the pressures, whether it be to fill up your tank with uh, home heating oil and or your gasoline and or diesel-powered vehicle, and the spike in everything that we touch and feel, cost of living issues, inflationary pressures, so some 43,000 people of retirement age are out there in the workforce. There then becomes a problem that I don't think gets, a, gets addressed very often, but... There is a distinct thought regarding ageism. More and more employers are not really that interested. And I hear these stories, whether it comes from some of the informal organizations representing retirees, is that you can go around with your life experience, your professional background, a really thick resume, level of education, and at a certain age, it becomes less desirable to hire. Not because I say so, but because people 55 plus are telling me exactly that. They have got all the tools in their toolbox to take on the jobs they're applying for and not getting them. Add into it, many people in that category are likely looking for part-time flexible hours versus to be hired full-time for obvious reasons. So if you're amongst that group that's out there trying to get back into the workforce, for whatever your motivation or reason may be, if you're coming up against that ageism issue, we should talk about it here on the program, and you're more than welcome to join us this morning, but that's a pretty big number, although, again, I'm not surprised whatsoever that so many people are back out there trying to find work as 55 older and or people who have full-time jobs, and because of the said or aforementioned pressures, maybe trying to add on a part-time job to their already busy life and schedule. Anyway, you want to talk about it? Let's go. Always like speaking with the province's Privacy and Information Commissioner, and of course, that's Michael Harvey. He's unable to join us on this topic because there's going to be some potential or pending court action. He's suggesting, or pardon me, he has instructed the Department of Industry, Energy, and Technology to go back and conduct a secondary search for records that are related to one complainant's access to information request. This is all about the proposed wind farm and hydrogen plant and the Port-of-Port Peninsula. So the complainant said that he did indeed get some information, but the department withheld more. He says he knows full well, or he or she, I'm not, who, I'm not sure who this person is, that there's records that are, have not been identified and released to the complainant, and he knows they exist, or she knows they exist. So the province's uh, privacy commissioner says the department did not provide sufficient evidence to support the exemptions to access or that a reasonable search had been conducted, and he has recommended the release of that information. With all of the controversy in some corners and the pushback coming from some communities, notably out on the Port of Port Peninsula, when this becomes the add-on story, it makes their worries, anxieties, frustrations probably worse. If there's more information that is there, and it doesn't have commercially sensitive information, it doesn't have proprietary issues, you've got to go back and deliver the goods. Because when we talk about a social license, and when we talk about people living and working around where these projects will be potentially built, any bit of information that can be released should be released. So the province's Privacy and Information Commissioner, Michael Harvey, 
I think does an important service for us. And on this one, let's get the info out there. Because again, we have an inkling as to how the oil industry works. We know a bit about the mining industry. We know a lot about forestry. We understand the ins and outs and the complexities of the fishery. But this whole wind project and green hydrogen is in its infancy. And there's so many unknowns that people are justifiable in asking these questions. So let's get the information out there so they can be further or better informed so that we can have a constructive conversation about exactly what's being proposed, what the implications are, what's in it for us, where the red flags are. Because at this moment in time, it's possibly the absence of some of that information that is holding back some people's opinion on whether or not they think it's good for the economy locally or otherwise. Anyway, let's take it on. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? Throat is dying. So let's go. All right, so there's been a new committee struck to talk about uh, healthcare infrastructure, in particular on the Northeast Avalon. So it's going to be called the Healthcare Infrastructure Advisory Committee. They're going to be providing guidance to the province to talk about existing and projected healthcare infrastructure needs in the region. So the committee is going to be chaired by Dr. Pat Parfrey, and the members will have experience in acute care, long term care, mental health and addictions, ambulatory care. Man, there's some bad stories out there regarding ambulance service and community based services. You wonder what the committee would have suggested or recommended regarding the location for the new mental health facility, of course, to replace the Waterford. Whether or not they would have thought on a floodplain in an already densely congested, really busy area, being the health sciences complex. And I think the big one, of course, that they'll be looking at is the announcement that came out of nowhere regarding the replacement for St. Clair's Hospital. And at some point, it does have to be replaced. Anyone who's ever been to St. Clair's knows full well it is showing its age. The key is not only whether or not it should be and the timeliness for replacing St. Clair's, but where it will be built. And I think there's a fair debate being had in some of the communities surrounding St. John's, like, for instance, Mount Pearl, where they think maybe the hospital should be outside of the city. You know, it wouldn't really hamper access for townies, but that would be a big discussion about where those jobs and where that infrastructure and the distance people have to travel for those types of services inside a, a hospital like St. Clair's. But that committee, they've got their hands full. And, you know, since we heard the announcement about replacing St. Clair's, not a peep since, which is really quite odd. Stick with health for a minute. If you are living in Happy Valley Goose Bay or in Gander and you know that your obstetric services have now been diverted, if in Gander it's going to Grand Falls, Windsor, Happy Valley Goose Bay to Lab City. The distance required to travel between Gander and Grand Falls, Windsor is one thing. But apparently it's like a seven hour drive between Happy Valley Goose Bay and Lab City. Six of ten families in Labrador Grenfell Health will be impacted by this diversion. You know, then you talk about the winter weather and maybe some complicated pregnancies. And just even the Braxton Hicks, the, the not real contractions that many women face, you know, you present yourself at hospital, they check how dilated you are and whether or not you should stay. But those types of diversions ha are coming with a price. There's no doubt about it. One more comment on health is I don't think there's been a finalized report regarding what people call excess deaths. It's a real number. And what's behind it? I'm not entirely sure. But the last time it's been reported, uh, excess mortality reporting, was the 1st of October in this province. So a lot of information yet to be compiled so we get a final look at what these excess death numbers look like. Whether it be with expected COVID deaths, reported COVID deaths, and or the general generalities of excess deaths. It's a pretty big number. And what's behind it? I think it's incumbent on our leading healthcare professionals, both the boots on the ground and at the department level, 
to give us the insight required so we can understand it. I don't know what the reasons for it is. I have no earthly idea. I'm assuming is a variety of complicated uh, factors, but we can talk about that too. And on the front, like things with being services being uh, diverted, once again, whether it be commercial truck drivers or the general traveling public, the call again, email inbox is full of people talking about needing 24-7 snow clearing. The truck drivers are pointing back to a, an incident regarding three of their vehicles and the accidents out around the Berkshire Narrows, which saw the highway shut down for hours. They say the conditions deteriorated overnight and consequently, bang, we had this accident. So the plows are kept off the road from 11 p.m. to 5 a.m. And as I said on Monday, when the province is asked about it, in particular, Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure, Elvis Loveless, you know, one of the quotes is, the plow operators will be there to assess and assist when an emergency arises. But again, why? what about if the emergency is directly related to the absence of snow clearing and ice control from 11 p.m. to 5 a.m. So I get it, the province is strapped for cash, but public safety is a hard place to find some savings. But if you want to talk about what you see, where you are regarding snow clearing or ice control, we're happy to have you on the show here <coughs> today. All right, a sad story comes from Spaniards Bay. 93-year-old Pearl Drover struck and killed as he tried to cross the street from the municipal center over to Restaurant 99. I've been in that area before. Traffic is heavier and heavier. The speeds with which people travel are, as you all know, are off the charts. The town added some lighting to try to give people a better opportunity to safely cross the road. But our condolences to Pearl and family, uh, family and friends. And they're the province, or pardon me, they're demanding that the province do more about this. It's a provincial road. Now, how you control traffic on some of those stretches of provincial road, maybe lighting is one thing, a crosswalk is an obvious other protection, but that has to come with advanced yellow lights to see that someone has pressed a button or presented themselves at a crosswalk, but that story is really quite sad, and we can take it on if you like. I do know that one of the key areas where we're going to have a fighting chance here provincially, economically speaking, is in the innovation sector, innovation and tech. It already contributes over a billion dollars to the economy at this moment in time. There's 8,000 people working for 600 different companies in the province's tech sector. Between the province and the federal government now, they're going to reopen what was the former Rona on Stavanger Drive in St. John's to be an innovation center, a place for companies to collaborate, work together on new technologies. You know, again, when people look how and where the government spends, and in this case, the province is spending some $7.1 million over six years, ACOA, the Atlantic Canada Opportunities Agency, is putting in some $2.5 million. These are the big strategic opportunities that I really do think are in front of us. The fellow who's the head at TechNL, Florian Viome, he was formerly the head of Memorials Center for Entrepreneurship. Add to that the Genesis Center and this Innovation Hub and C-Core. The opportunities there really are, I'll, I'll use the word limitless, but that's a pretty important spend if you ask me. All right. Looking forward to the World Juniors. I know shrouded with the cloud of scandal. Hockey Canada has now completed its investigation into the five members of Canada's 2018 World Junior team, and we'll see what the London Police Service does with it. But one shout-out to my good friends. You know, there's so many people out there trying to do good in the community, trying to give back, whether it be toy drives or food drives. Today, the Royal LePage brokerages in the Twin City are joining forces with the RNC and the Mount Pearl Police hosting food drives at Coleman's in Mount Pearl, 
and at New Flan Drive between 11 and 3 today. The food they collect will be donated to the Community Food Sharing Association, and our buddies, the K-Rock, will be on site doing a live remote. So congratulations to Royal LePage, their brokerages, the RNC and Mount Pearl Police. Hopefully they'll be able to raise a lot of money, raise a lot of food, and deliver to those who need. Okay, we are on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. Alan's there. He wants to respond to, I think, maybe something I said about the province being strapped for cash. We'll see what he thinks after this. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's begin on the top of the board. Line number one. Alan, you're on the air. Uh, yes, you you just made a comment about the government being uh, strapped for cash. Mm-hmm. That really hit because, I mean, Bottom line, not only the provincial but federal government, everything we buy is taxed, yeah. and and like we have the income tax, and every second or third day, you're hearing, well, well, the government's going to going to give a grant of this much money for something, or it's going to give a give this much for something else. Like for instance, right now, I mean, Canada is in in is putting money into that war. That's not even really ours. But yet Trudeau had the, the audacity to say that our veterans are asking too much. I mean, there's people out there that can't pay their light bills, and he gave $10 million for generators and stuff. So, I mean, this, this bit about the government being short on cash really, really hurts me. Because, like... Like I said, we all pay, everybody has to pay taxes. From the fellow at Foley, even picking up bottles on the side of the road to get a bite to eat. He still got to pay taxes. Well, and, anyone who records any income has to pay some tax, but. But what does that have to do with the comment that the province is strapped? You know, even if you look back not so long ago where they reported a surplus kind of out of the blue, there was, you know, higher than expected uh, corporate taxes, individual taxes, and, of course, oil royalties. But while they report a $479 million surplus, at the exact same time, still borrowing $1.8 billion, still have a net debt in excess of $16 billion. To me, when you add it all up, that does sound like a strapped for cash issue. But, of course, there is a $9 billion budget. They do indeed have tons of revenues coming in, but not to satisfy every single need and demand out there. Look no further than some of the issues we speak about every day on the show. So why are you irked by someone thinking or saying, in this case me, that the province is strapped? Well, it's not so much irked. I think that might have been the wrong way to say it. What I'm saying is, like, the highways and stuff like that there, and not just the highways, but anything. But, I mean, it's, um, like, that's the good of everybody. So, I mean, so money, is, if you're going to, if you've got money to throw or to give to people for grants and all that, make make sure that, like, our highways and that are clear first. I mean, put the people before the individual, which is, in my opinion, it's not happening. Okay. You know, and uh, people get irked by lots of stuff that I say, and that's part of the gig, right? So uh, I've also said in the past that the province doesn't necessarily have a revenue problem. They have a distribution problem. The most important things for governments to consider is exactly how and where and when to spend any money that comes in the door, whether it be an oil royalty, my taxes, your taxes, a corporate tax, or what have you, because a budget in excess of $9 billion dollars, to try to do the business of 520-ish thousand people, you would think there's money enough around to satisfy those needs, 
But it's only until this year that we weren't paying more to service our debt than we were in education. So there's a lot of different moving parts into where government does have money and where they can and should spend. But I, I get your point, I think. Uh, to me, it's just that I feel that the government, the government are not, it's not doing what they're supposed to. I mean, another one, I mean, and for the, gov- the federal government, uh, like you got Trudeau up there and he's saying, well, you know, we can't give out money unless we got a special plan. Well, why in hell did you just give away, uh, like, there are people here in Newfoundland, older people at, who can't afford to have heat and light for the winter, and you gave $10 million to buy generators for a foreign country. Like, to me, that just sounds like you're wasting my money, not, you know. If you if if you could legitimately tell me why you had to do that, okay, we'll talk. But otherwise, you don't think that there was any common sense uh, associated with NATO countries trying to contribute to the war in Ukraine to try to stave off Putin and his oh, army? No, 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 sir. I totally back that a hundred percent. I really do. But the thing is, like. Why? My point is, why would you give to help those people when you got your own people that are just uh, just bad off as they are? Not not saying that we're in a war or nothing, but you know what I mean. Like the people over here who cannot pay their get food and pay their bills and everything like that there, and they're not at war. Just circumstances that can't allow it. But, over, but yet you're going to give $10 million to these people. And I don't know if I'm playing this right, because I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, I'm being prejudiced or anything. I'm not. It's just I'm, I'm trying to understand. It, it's, like, it, it's like when I bring my paycheck home. I mean, my family and that should come first before I start giving money to people around the street. It's what I'm thinking. Right, uh, and I think there, there's an overlap there, but they are kind of different things about how you deal with your own family versus try to help the community. Like, I can only speak for myself. The amount of need that I see and I hear about all the time, as much as absolutely the priority inside my house is my wife and children. Of course it is, and then it's my extended family. But I, at the exact same time, still try to help where I can, even if that means we might not have as much for Christmas or something along those lines. There's there's just such a, a desperate laundry list of need in this country. For starters, and you hear if you listen to the show, you hear me talk about it all the time. If four four to five million Canadians are relying on food banks, that is an absolute failure in government. I mean food banks were a one time backstop. Now they've become the norm. They're the go to. And we talk about food drives all the time. And the numbers of people and the spike of 27% year over year in this province of people looking for food banks. So there's no argument uh, opposed to the fact that you're saying more needs to be done for certain segments of society. Whether it be seniors on fixed income uh, with trying to stave the wolf away from the door here over the winter months or what have you. Yeah, so yeah, where government spends is always going to be controversial, and some people will be all in on things like, for instance, humanitarian aid, and some people vehemently oppose because they know someone in their world, or they see the news, or hear the stories of people that are struggling mightily. Well, that's that's what. Yeah, but I mean, you you kind of make my point there because I know that's I know what I did. Yeah, I mean, 
I mean, the federal government just gets going to be started on them. Because, I mean, you got Trudeau there, and he's telling everybody to reduce their footprint. And what's he doing? Flying around in the private jet, pay for buddy taxpayers. And you got, like I said, I got a lot of disability for Trudeau. But my point, I just wanted to make that comment today okay. that, because that one really got me about, uh, well, you, you said there's a shortage of money. And like I said, I mean, Canadians pay way too much taxes compared to any other country. And for for the government to say, well, boy, we're short on money, we, it, it just doesn't sound right to me. I mean, you you, you get your paycheck, and like you said, you pay your mortgage and all that. So, I mean, with our tax dollars, first thing should be say, okay, well, what do we need? to have our own people happy. We need that highway made safer, and we need hospitals and doctors and stuff. So in my opinion, it's a government problem. If not, that problem is short on cash. I appreciate the call, Alan. Thanks for this. Thank you very much, sir. I hope you have a good day. Same to you. Bye-bye. Uh, okay, let's go ahead and take a break. So everyone knows about the prevalence of whether it be colds or respiratory illnesses or COVID or the flu. I don't know if the signs are out there that it may have leveled off, but the numbers of cases have indeed dropped a little bit uh, over the weeks. You know, we set a record back there the week of December 4th to the 10th, stabilizing somewhat, but someone who knows much more about it than I do is a professor of virology and immunology at Memorial University. That's Dr. Rod Russell. He's up after this. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to Professor Virology and Immunology at Memorial University. That's Dr. Rod Russell. Dr. Russell, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Yes, thanks for having me on. So we hear the stories day in, day out about the uh, the prevalence and the severity of seasonal influenza or RSV or COVID or whatever. But back in the week of December 4th to the 10th, 214 confirmed cases of influenza in the province, 54 hospitalizations, two deaths. What are we seeing now? How should people view the numbers? Because there's still a lot of flu out there, but it seems to me there's signs that it's stabilizing. Yeah, I think it's stabilizing. I think that sort of early arrival of flu was to be expected because we, you know, we've been basically hiding from all these viruses for a few years, right? You have, you know, you don't just have flu. You've got parainfluenza, adenoviruses, metanumovirus, rhinoviruses, coronavirus, and RSV on top of flu. And basically, you know, we were hiding from all that because of COVID, and we saw record low numbers from most of those viruses over the, over the last few years. But basically, that you know, those viruses were just out, they were still out there. They were waiting for their chance to flood back in. And of course, flu was one of the nastier ones. So that's what we saw now early in in the fall, right? So the flu, I would imagine, you know more much more about it than I do. Obviously, it's one thing to talk about our immune systems and how we've been staying away from each other for the most part. Even though when people say lockdown, it sort of exaggerates what we experienced here. But travel, I mean, travel was reduced to the point where you know flu was in large part absent because what we do, even when we create a vaccine for seasonal influenza, is based on what we see, for instance, in Australia. So how do you factor those two together in your world to understand just how prevalent the flu has been this year? Right. You're hitting it the, the exact point, right? Um, travel, you know, these viruses, as Dr. Fitzgerald used to say, right, the viruses move when people move. So we, we weren't moving, right? Nobody was traveling. 
And this summer, I mean, everybody took that vacation that they, they couldn't take in the last few years. So it was expected that, you know, the viruses that were sort of kept at bay in, in different parts of the world, you know, they were going to show up then everywhere. As soon as the planes started moving, people started moving, you were going to get, you know, the viruses from going to move right along with them. And, you know, that's exactly it. So now everything just, like I said, just floods back in. Um, you know, we still have our vaccines. We can still protect, you know, somewhat with flu. We we saw what was circulating in some parts of the world. So, we you know, the vaccine was actually a good match this year for the flu vaccine. Um, but, you know, some of these viruses like RSV, we don't have vaccines for them, right? With the seasonal flu vaccine, you know, there's been an awful lot of talk about the efficacy of the COVID vaccines, even through all the variants and how it represented itself. There's been years where the flu vaccine has been relatively ineffective. You say it's a good match this year. What kind of numbers are we talking about? Um, the best we see, it ranges, if you look at the last 10 years, I've seen everything from a 30% effective rate, effectiveness to up to 60. So, um, I, you know, we, have, we wouldn't have the data yet, but... You know, if a good year, we're hoping we'd see 50-60% coverage from the, you know, the flu vaccine with the match that we have. There's lots of talk about, uh, you know, the pediatric units. Ontario was the highlight headline on that front. And we've seen the capacity issues being, you know, nudged right up against at the Janeway emergency room here. Help us understand whether it be RSV, seasonal influenza, rhinovirus or otherwise, how different age groups are impacted differently. Because... I'm not really sure over the years that I've been that familiar with the age breakdown as right. distinct as it's been this year. So whether it be 61% of the cases have been people under the age of 45 and yeah. all the children that are presented and the seniors that may indeed be compromised. How are we supposed to understand these demographic impacts? Yeah, that's complex. And, and that's it. <clears throat> I think, you know, to, to understand it, you really do have to look at the age group. So, <clears throat> sorry, I'm just getting over cold myself. Of course, I've right? got one. <laughs> um, if you look at the youngest, right, if we start with the youngest, you know, the zero to th- the kids who were three and under, I mean, they were born at a time when, you know, we were in, you know, yes, not lockdown, but some of them were, were born during lockdowns. But even after that, I mean, you, you think about it, right? Any, any parent that had a child back in 2020, you were trying to protect your children. You were trying to keep them from getting infected with anything, right? We were all worried, really worried about COVID at that point. We didn't know, you know, what COVID was going to be like in an infant. Um, it was scary. So, I, I mean, I got messages. Messages from from moms who were like, I'm not letting any of my family visit my child until the kid is six months old and stuff like this. And we didn't know how to handle it. So fast forward down to now, we, we know that those kids missed, you know, this term immunity debt is out there. And, and I've commented on that recently. And I don't like that term because there's no debt to the immune system. The, I'm, the term I like to use is a gap in education, right? The kids didn't see any viruses or not, not that many for, for three years. So they didn't build up antibodies against all these common seasonal bugs that that they'd normally see. So at the end now, what you have is basically every kid three and under, they're probably all going to get all those viruses that they would have got over the last few years in the next few months or within the last few months and up until the next few months, say this flu season, right? So that group of kids, they saw nothing almost nothing. Then you have the, the kids, say, four to six years old, who would have been seeing their first batches of viruses around, you know, their first, second, third years of life. Well, they're in school now, and they, they saw nothing for the last few years. And they, they also had this gap of, you know, what they'd normally get in their school exposure. So every group, you know, every different age group had this sort of gap in exposure to viruses, which was necessary. And I, I should say, of course, that, you know, all these measures were necessary to keep people from dying of COVID, because we would have seen a lot more deaths 
of, of vulnerable people if we hadn't done everything we did. So I support what we did. But at the end of the day, there's going to be fallout. And this is what we're seeing now, right? All the viruses are flooding back in and they're impacting different age groups at, you know, in different ways because of the different timings of, of you know, when we had our little gaps in, in exposure. And then same thing with the older people, right? Anybody then, you know, children, say over, you know, not children, like adults and, and young adults, we still had a gap in, in, in what I'd say the, the natural boosting, right? We, know, we all have see all these viruses every year, you know, Sometimes you you know you, you get infected one year and you get a slightly different version the following year, so you you don't get too sick because your your memory response from the previous year keeps you from getting too sick. You don't get this, the the high severity of disease. So we all sort of had this you know gap in in education of our immune system. You know, there was no foolproof safeguard in public health policy here, whether it be the combination of washing your hands and covering your coughs and sneezes and masking and physical distancing and vaccines. Nothing, one, not one thing stood alone as the go-to. Did we also possibly miss part of the boat or one of the trips on the boat with the lack of messaging surrounding how we can boost our own immune system, even when we're talking about being distant from each other, even when we're talking about the lack of travel, whether it be through exercise or vitamins, now that people have you know, given further consideration to being vaccinated and people are Christmas party seasons upon us. What do you say to folks for our own personal individual responsibility for how to better improve or to make your, your own immune system more robust, given all the factors we've discussed? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you if you're going to reduce exposure, which we did, right, uh, and, and people still are, you know, nobody wants to be sick and, and everybody's just cycling all these different things now. And, you know, anybody with young kids all feel that, you know, each kid is just, you know, you have one kid sick one week and the other the next week, then the parents get sick and then you start over in a month a month later. But at the end of the day, there's there's no doubt. Diet is really important for your immune system. I mean, you look at countries where, you know, where there's really, you know, poor nutrition, they're the sickest countries, right? I mean, you know, you can you don't need to look very far to see that. Um, there's no doubt that you're, you know, the better you eat, the more healthy you're going to be. Um, vitamins, yes, of course. Any Anything that improves your health, exercise, um, you know, getting outdoors, you know, keep in mind, right, we're, we're talking about these these bugs, like there's only a handful of respiratory viruses out there. But, when, you know, you're exposed to viruses and bacteria all the time if you're just, you know, jogging around the lake. So I agree. Any physical activity outdoors, um and, and eating well and exercising well, you know, that's going to help your immune system. And, you know, these supplements and, and different things, they, they contribute. Now, will they keep you from getting infected? Maybe not. Will they help you fight the infection once you got it? I believe so. We've seen the, a real raft of boosters coming fast and furious. And I think it's presented some confusion amongst different age demographics and what kind of vaccine they should get, the bivalent or what have you. What do you foresee the future being in the world of vaccination, specifically regarding COVID. I know we get guidance from NACI and provinces try to incorporate that into the public health policies and recommendations. Do you foresee this being an annual shot or are we going to talk about trying to put a better focus on our own immune system versus reliance on vaccines in full, which have proven, especially with Omicron, to not be as advertised? So what do you foresee? Yeah, um, I think it's early to say, to be honest. I think, you, you know, we have two possibilities, right? 
it depends on what the virus does. And that's the thing, right? We're still playing a, a catch-up race with this virus. We're still, you know, watching what it's going to do next because it's still settling in. You know, this is still a new virus in a new species. And we've all these changes and all these variants are, are because it's it hasn't found an equilibrium yet, right? Most of the other viruses we deal with, they've sort of settled into a pattern. Uh, you know, even flu with all the different types of flu out there. There's, you know, we know most of them and, you know, A, B and C come up next year, this year, and a, a different batch are, are around a year after that. So we still don't know the end game for COVID yet. You know, hopefully it's Omicron and then Omicron will just keep changing a little bit and not too much. So if it if it stays, if this is the last variant, then they'll start designing vaccines based on that. And then if, you know, they'll, they'll monitor how well the vaccines are doing against the circulating subspecies or subvariants of, of Omicron. And then we could be getting, like we're getting now, with, with a, a shot that has two, three, four different um, variants in, you know, in the one shot. Um, if we keep getting variants, if you get annual variants, then, yeah, you're going to have to keep updating the vaccine like we do with flu. And I think that's probably right now, at least the next few years, probably the best case scenario is that we watch, uh, you know, we're – how it evolves and try to tailor a vaccine to it. But I think, you know, a year, an annual shot is probably, you know, as much as anybody is ever going to accept. I think that's the right word because the controversy surrounding it and how it was, you know, rushed to market and people talk about uh, the control testing and what have you, which I don't need to get into right now. But people in your discipline of virology and immunology, do you have any thoughts on what is, you know, not immunity debt, but excess deaths, because that is a real headline grabber. I really have no earthly idea what all the contributing factors would, would be. But to people in your discipline, will that be something that your research looks at to try to help us understand exactly what went on, whether or not be people who were on the wait list for cardiac procedures and they passed away while on the wait list or other contributing factors, whether it be from the vaccine to wait list to lockdowns to travel. Does your discipline have any interest in that particular area? Oh, yes. I've been I've been saying from the beginning of the pandemic that, you know, as a scientist, I mean, I, I keep saying this is all horrible, right? COVID is horrible. People are dying. You know, nobody wanted this, of course. But, you know, it's as you know, for science, I mean, you can almost pick any discipline you want. And there's the ideas, you know, the, the questions the interesting, important, relevant questions. It's just picking apples off a tree that's five feet tall, right? You can just, you know, mental health, the, the impact of, of the lockdowns, the impact of the fear, the imp you know, the, the, the vaccine, the controversy over the vaccines and then people's acceptance of the vaccines or their or their resistance of the vaccines, just the, the opinions and, you know, how that affected people, how people felt about that. The, the amount of research that, that's going to come from this pandemic is... You can't even keep track of it. And that's just, you know, mental health. If you look now at, like you said, cardiac, there's no doubt that other systems are affected, right? We're seeing, you know, some people are saying COVID is not even a respiratory disease anymore because they're saying that the vascular system is actually affected more by the infection than, than the lungs. Now, there's no doubt there's, there's lung, you know, effects on the lungs and damage on the lungs, especially if you have longer, severer disease. But, yeah, it's, I mean... You can't even imagine how many interesting questions are going to come out of all this. And I think, yes, everything. The answer is yes. Everything that's that's curious or relevant at this point will be will be examined going forward. Uh, if you had to make a recommendation for those who are willing to entertain conversations or consideration of one vaccine or another, do you have one that you would recommend? 
No, um, I think, I mean, I, I definitely believe the, the bivalent vaccines, you know, we just started rolling them out. Um, but, you know, based on immunology and virology, the the better match, right? And we've learned that from flu, right? The better match you have, um, you know, between the vaccine and the virus should give you the better immune response. So as long as it, I, I would say get either one of the, the bivalent vaccines, technically the Pfizer vaccine is, is further along the variant um, evolution chain. We'll say it's closer to what's out there now. But honestly, by the time either one of the, the Pfizer or the Moderna, by the time either one of them came out, they were already out of date, slightly out of date, you know, by a few months, right? But both of them were years up to date compared to the original ones, right? So I would say the most up to date is the better. Yeah, very likely. That's the way I think about it. Last comment, unless you want to comment on it. We heard from public health policy uh, people and we heard from other academics and the medical community. But the one group of scientists that had it right, more so than anybody other, any other discipline, are the social scientists about how the public would react, whether it be the virus itself, lockdowns and mandates and all of those types of things. They painted a very clear picture about how it would divide and become controversial. And now we're just reacting to the social scientists who had it right and trying to figure out whether or not we could, going forward, you know, adopt more of that, which is a bit more philosophical than it is uh, hard data that you would deal with. But that's yeah. a curious interaction for me is they knew, they told us, hey, this is going to be bad. Yeah. And it's not going to just be yeah. bad in healthcare settings. It's going to be bad in the community. Yeah, I, I would agree with everything you say. Um, you know, it's been, it, there's some of the stuff, I mean, if you look, if I'd like to have the time to go back and look at all my, you know, I, I kept a, a Word document making notes on all these interviews over the last two or three years, and it's, I don't know, it's 30 pages long now. But as the questions came up, I sort of, you know, put in my own opinion. And, you know, sometimes I was right, sometimes I was wrong, because this virus did throw us lots of curves balls. But I agree with you fully about the social science side. Um, you know, vaccines has been, you know, historically one of the most controversial topics, you know, that we've been faced with. And it was interesting to see, you know, how quickly, you know, you had people who right away said, yes, I want the shot, roll up my sleeve, give it to me as soon as you can. You had some who said, no way, never. Then you had the middle group who were like, you know, leaning a little bit one way or a little bit the other. And a lot of the, the middle group eventually said, no, you know what, I'm going to get the vaccine, even if they were not someone to get their flu shot. They they said, no, this is different. I'm, I don't want to take a chance. We don't know anything about this. Give me the shot. I'd rather be safe than sorry. But, but you know, you always had that 10% of the population who said, no way, never. You're not putting that in me. I don't care what you do, and didn't get it unless they, they had to. So, so those predictions, yes, they were right. Um, and the same with the mask. I mean, even now, right, you have people who want mask mandates back. Now, I, I wouldn't support that, to be honest, right now, at this point in the game, because all this, this flood of viruses that's come back now is, is partly because we were hiding from all these viruses. So if we just keep hiding, then they're just going to come back again at a different later time, right? So I think some people should wear masks right now because they, they are more vulnerable than others. But, you know, that whole idea about the mask mandate right now, I mean, that's, that's a powder cake too, right? But you're right. Yeah. Social science predicted it. Uh, Dr. Russell, great to have you on the show. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Anytime. Take care. Bye-bye. Dr. Okay. Rod Russell is a professor of virology and immunology at Memorial University. Time for a break. When we come back, we'll talk about hospital divergence and the FFAW elections. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Morning, Peter. You're on the air. Yes, uh, Patty. I didn't think I'd be calling you back so quick uh, from last week, but uh, since our conversation there on uh, the executive of uh, FFAW endorsing Greg Pretty, uh, 
you know, even even after they done that, you still got two candidates now, Jason Sullivan and uh, David uh, Callahan, is after uh, putting their name forward. And you know, if that don't tell the executive and the inshore council that you know members are not happy with endorsing Greg Pretty, I don't know what is, you know. But I, I just think that, you know, the executive should have some kind of a emergency meeting and make a, an amendment to the, the Constitution because it seems like the Constitution was was written so that uh, they'd keep on appointing uh, people rather than uh, fair elections. Well, I, I suppose it may indicate that, the fact that Mr. Sullivan and Callahan are wanting to run for the top job at the union. But I don't think anyone should be surprised that Jason Sullivan is vehemently opposed to how the inshore in particular is handled by the FFAW. He was one of the key voices in Fish NL. He's currently the president, asked to step down, get a leave from his uh, his president's role at CNL at this moment in time. So Mr. Sullivan, Jason Sullivan, has been in the news opposed to the FFAW and their current rank and file and current leadership for years. I don't even know if Mr. Callahan's eligible. Is he even a member of either the... Uh, a, a dues-paying member at the FFAW, let alone a member of the Inshore Council? I don't know. I saw that story well, go by not, yesterday. He's not a member of the Inshore Council, but uh, to the best of my knowledge, yes, he is a, a paid-up uh, okay. FFAW member, and uh, I don't know him personally, but, you know, like, uh, he, w- he wouldn't put his name forward uh, unless he was a paid-up member because that's one of the the things there and uh, requirements. But, uh, you know, apparently some, some, uh Harvester for telling me that uh, he he got a lot of knowledge in a, in a lot of different things uh, and the and the fishery so like uh, negotiations and things like that. Now I don't know him personally, but uh, you know like I like for those people to call into your show and uh, just let everybody know what what they got uh, the offer too. That that'd be nice. And uh, but uh, you know like uh, the membership. You know, like should be the ones who uh, who who elects the next president. There's two years left, and I think there should be an amendment made there in the constitution and go to a, a membership vote. And then, you know, like even with the odds, the house, the cards, or the house stacked against them, they're still stepping forward. Uh, you know, that says that they're they're not happy with the the executive did when uh, endorsing uh, Pretty, and. Uh, you know, like, uh, and I like for Pretty to tell you know what he got the offer now that he hasn't had since 1979, and but at the end of the day, I'm not going to keep you, Patty. But what I'm saying is, I think it's so unfair that the members of the FFAW can't vote for the president that they want when there's already three candidates' names on the floor. That's what I want to say to you, Patty. Yeah, I understand. I want to say to your listeners and the members. Yeah, I'm not surprised. And both Jason Sullivan and Dave Callan are more than welcome to call. I mean, I think people are familiar with Dave Callan on a variety of different fronts. You know, back in the school bus business, and he's got a uh, he's in the marijuana business these days, I believe, and talk about bringing some more business to his uh, neck of the woods out on the west coast of the island. I haven't heard him talk a whole lot extensively, anyway, about the FFAW, if I remember correctly, because I've spoken to Dave on this program many, many times. And same thing with Jason Sullivan. So both, if you're listening, 
listening. If you want to chime in and put forward your CV and your pitch and your thoughts on whether or not the Constitution needs to be amended to expand the voting opportunity to every single person who pays any dues to the FAW to vote on who should be their next president, they're more than welcome. Okay, Paddy, thanks for taking me time this morning in all the best. I appreciate your time, Peter. Merry Christmas to you and yours. You as well. Okay, man. All the best. Bye-bye. All right. uh, Yeah, so either of those or anybody who wants to chime in on fisheries matters in large or the specifics of the election and Mr. Keith Sullivan walking away and Jason Sullivan would like to be the next Sullivan in line, as would Dave Callan and Greg Pretty. Greg Pretty's welcome to call as well. The topic, well, that's up to you. When we come back, the first call in the queue, we're going to talk about hospital divergence. I imagine that this one is about obstetrics between Gander and Grand Falls, Windsor. And then it's your turn. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. And welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the PC member for Bonavista. That's Craig Party. Good morning, Craig. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and thank you very much for taking my call. Happy to do it. Appreciate the patience. <laughs> that's, uh, that's glad, and, and I enjoyed listening to Dr. Russell. And uh, I think you nailed it when you're talking about the social scientist. And uh, yeah, I think they were they were right on, and you were you were 100 percent correct, no doubt. They called that and nailed it. Yeah. Well, you know, had the academics and the medical professionals paid a bit more heed to I they probably think some of the social sciences and scientists aren't really scientists but they are so had the the public messaging about public health policy you know incorporated some thoughts from the social scientists we probably would have done a better job especially about social cohesion maybe not necessarily strictly about vaccines and public health policy but to address the differences that they forecasted would have been pretty helpful I think Yes, I agree 100%. Patty, I, I called in this morning, just wanted to talk about the health care on the Bonavista Peninsula. And, and, and um, we, we just recently had a diversion um, this past weekend, you know, where anybody uh, seeking, um, you know, medical attention would need to drive to, to Clarenville. So I just want to speak to that. But first of all, I want to give a shout out to um, a group of citizens who are not protesting, but they are rallying between 12 and 1 on Hospital Road daily. And they've been doing that since the end of July. And I joined them yesterday on the line. Um, You know, uh, again, not protesting, but just wanting to make sure that we have the quality care, health care, on the Bonavista Peninsula in a community that that they they love so much. A couple of things that came that we we discussed, we don't know how many uh, are in the Bonavista area without a family physician. Uh, There's a significant number, but what number, I don't know. I'm not sure if anybody knows. We know the provincial number, but how many would be on this peninsula? I'll often, uh, when I engage with constituents, I'll often ask them as to do they have a family physician. Quite often it's not. But if they do have one, then quite often they're traveling, some from St. John's to Clarenville to uh, Port Blanford uh, to do that. The only thing we fully aware that without a family physician and without the, the continuity of care, it increases the acuity of the cases. And I think most would agree, would agree with that. If we look at the eMERGE room in Bonavista, Patty, and we use the data from uh, Quality of Care NL, um, when we look at the acuity scales, you know, for the Canadian triage and acuity scale. And we know that uh, the first three, one to three, would be, you know, critical. Resuscitation, emergent, and um, 
the data shows that we got a high incidence in the Bonavista area on on the peninsula. Uh, again, looking at the the classification of the visits to the to the ER. So I understand uh, you mentioned about the mental health, and I think Dr. Russell mentioned about the mental health. Uh, these diversions impact the people that would be uh, on the peninsula. I would think that if they do fall in the level one or level two which again, um, data would show that there's a significant number that go to the hospital, uh, maybe needing resuscitation or emergent, then the hour and a half drive to Clarenville is, is a daunting and it worries people. So even people here now are just worried that when we have at the end of this year, you know, from December 26th now on to New Year's, then we're going to be in, uh, I, I think we're suspecting that we're going to be in diversion again, then that creates a lot of stress. Uh, we also have the greatest percentage of seniors in the province, second only to Avalon West, according again to the uh, to the quality of care NL data. Uh, so this past weekend we went on diversion, as I had stated, and Clarenville was at capacity. So what that does in Clarenville is that they 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 just don't have the capacity even in the emerge room to handle people with no available beds. Because anybody in the Bonavista Hospital without a doctor in the acuity care would have to be sent uh, to to Clarenville. It creates a stress on the system. I had a healthcare worker call yesterday and state that her mother was scheduled for surgery. Uh, unfortunately, cancer, but at least it was being seen to. But that was canceled in Clarenville yesterday. And the reason given for it being canceled is that they didn't have any capacity. There, there were no beds. So this is what we face. And, Patty, if I can get into a couple of things that I just want to throw out there. Okay. I know everyone Everyone is doing the best they can to try, and I know that it's a national, it may be an international, and I know where we are. We've always said that in order to compete, we need to make sure that the remuneration of our physicians are the same as, and we've always used Atlantic Canada. And if it wasn't, that means that we're probably going to lose physicians. In the Bonavista area, we are as close to a Category A hospital as a health center as that probably of any other health center. And I, I, I tend to be corrected on that, but if not, within the, the, a couple of health centers, that we have data that we show that we do have a high volume, serving about 10,000 people. The, um, if we don't have parity in what we would pay our physicians, we know that we're, we're going to be on the, on the recruitment side, we're going to be struggling to do so. When uh, on, in July we attended the Provincial Recruitment and Retention Initiative at the Mockbagger Plantation in Bonavista, and I recall, we're going back to July, but I remember vividly, a lady, Bernice Clements, had asked a question about the difference between uh, anybody working, a physician working at the ER in Bonavista compared to, you know, to um, what she had used Carnival, say a Category A hospital. Uh, the premier had answered the question and stated that uh, not much. They're they're very similar. The difference is, was about a hundred dollars. Now, that was the answer. I just thought a hundred dollars is not worth. I said, and her follow-up question was, why in the world is it only a hundred dollars? You know, why not have have parity? So that was all I thought about it. But the reality would be is that uh, it's, it's about the, that difference would be about an hourly rate. That would be the difference between an ER uh, here in Bonavista compared to a, a Category A. That is significant. 
that is not what I glean or what we glean from the mock beggar. I know they've bridged the gap. I know they've added incentives for to work here. But if we're still considerably off and we're only about 60% of what the others, we know that we're going to have diversions because, again, we don't have that ability. And at a time where we're short with physicians and we know that we have a shortfall, we know that we are behind the eight ball in recruitment. And the last thing I would just want to throw out there, Patty, I spoke in the House on two or three occasions. I talked about our Mun Medical School. And listen, it's top notch. There's nobody complaining about it. I think you may have said too about, you know, you get in the system, you're in top quality care because I said they, they are wonderful. We only retain, according to 2021 data of the medical schools, and if we look at those that are practicing, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians practicing in Canada, uh, compared to the ones that we've got here, we retain about 44% of our graduates from Mun Medical School. So we add five more seats. If the data is correct that we only retain 44%, then, well, listen, we can hope that we're going to get two of them currently as we would have. So out of 17 medical schools in Canada, we have a 44% retention rate. You look at Northern Ontario, at Northern Ontario, they got an 88% retention rate. In speaking in the House of Assembly, I had suggested and stated that I think we ought to look at a service agreement for two years. Five years might be a stretch, three years maybe on the something to consider, but at least two years for our graduates to come out. We invest $50 million a year into our medical school. I don't know why we wouldn't look at that those upon entry would know that they would serve two years in Newfoundland and Labrador. Of those, I'm sure at least 44% are going to stay and hopefully more that we would have. But that might be an option to look at going forward to know that we've got coverage in these more rural areas in our in our province. Fair enough. Um, I mean, even when I believe the discipline was respiratory therapist talking about a uh, an in service agreement as part of the offerings there with some of the incentives that they were dangling. Uh, okay, some of those complexities I think are worthwhile adding to the pile. For instance. When you have a lack of family doctors, the fact of the matter is if I'm going to med school and that's my chosen path forward uh, as how I want to be a doctor, unfortunately, many of them have to leave for the additional tutelage and mentoring before they get fully qualified and licensed to be a practicing general practitioner. So if they leave for that, how do we make sure or to ensure that they return home for that return of service agreement because that's where some of the complexities lie. And this is the information I get from doctors themselves because I've asked them, you know, if it can work in one healthcare area, why can't it work for doctors? And they do go on to say that some of the training opportunities and the additional couple of years of mentorship required can't even be done here necessarily. So how does that gap get filled even if we hope that that family doctor, for instance, returns back. And the in-service agreement is that we'd like you to set up shop for three years in Burgio, which is a community I use all the time on this stuff. That's where it gets a little bit more complicated than not. But I think everyone understands your point. There's 80 seats at Mons Med School, and there's two different budgets, one for Memorial University proper, one for the medical school. The, the additional five seats you mentioned, there yep. once was, about a year ago, 60 seats for Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. The province of New Brunswick stopped funding their five seats at our med school. The province took up those five seats. So now 65 out of 80 are for people from this province. So, yeah, you know, yep. uh, further to all of that, 
for healthcare workers. Despite Mons want to go down the road of having a, a law school, if all that energy and effort and money went into expanding seats for nurses, nurse practitioners, respiratory therapists, family doctors, maybe, just maybe, that would be a better idea for bang for buck at Mona. Yeah. Uh, uh, Patty, you're 100% correct. Uh, I didn't use a specialist, but I know that the data I received from the specialists is that we retained 35% of them. And, and I know that that might be an issue because we may not have the capacity of what we turn out. And that, you know, again, I don't know enough about that to understand that, you know, we turn out a lot of specialists, but we don't have the capacity or we don't have the uh, the place of practice here. I don't know. I, I just focus on the family physicians. I would think the majority of the family physicians may be doing their residency on the island or in Labrador, I, I would assume. And again, I don't have that, Dan. I'm not sure. But I know the specialists often would be abroad, you know, in other parts of Canada. Uh, we had a conversation at the line yesterday, and two people on the line, uh, rally line, and just to finish, Patty, was uh, Gail Brown and Reg Durrell. And they were talking about when we look at the cost of flying in uh, locums to cover our for 24-hour shift in, in, in our peninsula. If you do the math on that, and, and they were looking at and just said, listen, think about adding the flights, adding the accommodations, and you do that. And the story everyone believes here that we've had three physicians here that wish to stay in Bonavista, but again, it was uh, the remuneration wasn't uh, settled on. Uh, they, they couldn't agree on that. So on the line yesterday, they had a discussion saying, do the math on the locums that you bring in and you fly in to do coverage, which is essential that we have somebody but if you did the math, maybe we're probably we, we should be better off paying those who wish to stay here the salary of which we can keep them, and to have them here in the on the Bonavista Peninsula. And the math may show that you may be uh, wiser in doing that. Appreciate the time this morning, Craig. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. Take, take good have care. A good one. You bye too. Bye bye. All right, uh, before we get to the break, very quickly, I want to say the happiest of birthdays to Bonnie Brown out in Chance Cove. Today, happy birthday to you, Bonnie. Hope you have a great one and a great holiday season. Today's a good day to get on the program. The topic, that is entirely up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Uh, just referring to a couple of emails during the break, and it's about municipal budgets. And we've made mention of some of them that have been tabled in the recent past. And yes, of course, yesterday, two notables, one in Grand Falls, Windsor, one in CBS. In Grand Falls, Windsor, there will be an increase to water and sewer tax. So the folks out in that community are going to be paying $545 for up from $475 and a bunch of other issues we can broach inside that. And out in CBS, there is going to be a raise in the residential property tax for both residences and commercial. They're going to see a raise in their water and sewer tax. So if you're a member of one of those communities, want to talk about what you heard, whether that was good news or bad news, we'll leave it up to you. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, sir. How are you today? Not very bad. <laughs> Pardon me, not too bad. Thanks. How are you doing? <clears throat> I'm doing great, thank you. Right. I'm calling just to express some uh, frustration and anger with uh, a call I had to an insurance company yesterday, and I will leave the name of the company out of the airways here, uh, and really their lack of coverage for an, an elderly woman here that I'm uh, referring to in this case. She's 80 years old. So just a couple of pieces of background here for your listeners. Uh, this person has been paying insurance on her current home for 21 years without a single claim. And during one of the weather events we had a few months back, uh, she experienced some flooding in her basement. And there was uh, damage just done to some of the flooring, furniture. Uh, she had a freezer in the basement which contained food that was, uh, I guess, shorted out and is no longer working. So her daughter um, uh, basically had an assessor come in. 
they did the pictures and asked about different things and we uh, discussed with the assessor the idea about making a claim on some of the damage done and uh, basically to see if there was anything we could recover for uh, in this case my partner's mom so we waited for months and we got the news that the claim had been cancelled and because um, the insurance company really wanted to know whether or not there was a drain in the floor. Now, this basement is is fully done, so the floor would be covered with wood and the subfloor. So there was some uh, one room where there was moisture, uh, I guess a lot more moisture than others. So I personally tore up the floor and traced uh, the water entry source in my mind, possibly back to a crack in the foundation. So here's the rub here now. So the insurance company basically said, well, they will not pay out anything because um, uh, the water possibly came into this crack. And uh, in in this case, the only way that coverage would take place was whether water had been, I guess, pushed backwards up through like a, an existing floor drain or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, the problem that I have here right now, of course, is is just the hidden loopholes and things that are in the whole insurance uh, business and I mean for in this case this is an elderly woman who has been paying and and you know like insurance coverage is something that I know from my own parents uh, type thing you know you, you got to have this and that and you, you try your best to make sure everything is covered and above board so in in this case here as I said the basement was finished so this crack in the wall could have happened over years it could have happened when uh, actually some uh, there was some blasting in that area happened uh, I don't know about 20 or 30 years ago I guess uh, when homes were being first built there and one of the churches was being built so it really is is no point in or in in even asking about it because there's no way to trace back whether that was actually the cause of that so in this case you know, was it an event like that that caused the crack? Either way, I guess my point is when you buy insurance against things like flooding in your home or whatever, I think the general consumer assumes that the coverage is against flooding. You, you know, you don't assume you only get water if the, or coverage if the water comes in through like a specific point in the floor. You know you know what I mean? I, I do. You know, in general terms, John, I would imagine most people don't really know what their insurance policy covers. You know, we find out the hard way sometimes. So, of course, the big topics, whether it be on the southwest coast and storm surge and whether or not people knew that they weren't covered for it, but even inside your home policy in more quiet parts of the province, you know, regarding that exposure to the sea, it's worthwhile talking to your broker. It really, truly is. Because you hear the stories, so paint a picture. Am I covered if this happens? Am I covered if that happens? Because after the fact, it's far too late. Well, it's it's very interesting you say that because my discussion with this insurance representative was in my mind like dotted with uh, remarks that I personally found to be a bit off-putting in terms of the whole insurance industry. Like the first thing was the idea of, well, he said, you know, I don't really have time to explain to you all the reasons why a particular settlement is a claim or not claim. I get that, but uh, but in he went on with the idea that in some cases. Uh, uh, there might be covered. And here's one he brought up, which I find very interesting. He said, um, like, if water came in around your windows or doors because of faulty caulking that was uh, done around your doors, he said you probably wouldn't get covered. He said the homeowner is responsible for regular maintenance and checking all the caulking around everything, like your dryer vents, your windows, etc. cetera, uh, because if, uh, if it's, he said, he even suggested that this be done every two years. Now, I am fairly handy in terms of repairing things, and I have worked uh, uh, alongside of some people who are good at construction, 
Well, I can tell you that most cocking, I would think, would last longer than two years. And I Absolutely. also wonder, how would a how would a homeowner have the wherewithal? I mean, think of this. What do you want? A, a person 80 years old up on a ladder trying to check every piece of cocking around your windows to say, well, I better get this done again. And And even in that case... How would you prove it? Like, would you have to have video of somebody every two years cocking your windows or else somebody at the insurance place say to you, hey, listen, we're not covering you because that water looks like it might have come in through a, a faulty joint in that window. Good so point. To me, it was, a, it was a rude awakening here right now. And I asked the person, is that written in the policy and insurance that you have to have your cocking done every two years? He said, oh, no. I said, so you're telling me it's not written in. But on the other hand, you're telling me it could be used against me if I didn't have that done as regular maintenance, which, in, again, in my mind, is infuriating uh, to me to have those kind of conversations. Anyway, um, I just uh, I just at the end of the call, I was as I am now, I'm emotional. I was frustrated with this whole racket that this person had been paying out a lot of money over 21 years. And the, the, the claim, I would think, Patty, in this case, for the furniture and the you know the flooring that had to be replaced and a few things like that, uh, we had the the crack in the the wall injection seal and all like this kind of stuff. But you know the claim is really peanuts in terms of the insurance business, probably a you know a five thousand dollar kind of uh, claim. Um, but when it was all over, the agent said another interesting thing to me, and he said, "Well, I'm going to cancel your claim rather than deny it." And he thought he was doing me a big favor because he said that. We're going to cancel it because that, in all likelihood now, by me canceling it rather than denying it, this probably won't affect her rate as much when she renews. Now, I had to take a swallow there at that what? point. <laughs> when the person, I said, but we didn't claim anything. Yeah. You know, we didn't ask for anything. But almost like, it was almost as if, because you've picked up a little stink here now, and because you've actually had someone come in to see if you're eligible for a claim, you're probably, I guess, I guess, in their industry, targeted as a higher risk. 21 years with no claim, and now somebody's looking at you and saying, "This probably won't affect your rate too much." Are you kidding me? You know, even even my dog is upset with that one. Anyway, I I just wanted to say that in my mind, something has to be done. You know, about this industry, in terms to, uh, I guess, present to the consumer. Uh, what I would call a uh, layman's terms of insurance here in some cases, you know, like when I go in to buy it, nobody sits there across the table and says to me when I'm buying house insurance, before you buy the flooding insurance, boy, I just want to tell you, it got to come in through this hole over right here or else you're, you're, you're flat out denied. Anyway, it, it was just a frustrating experience, and I just wanted to call in to say to people, it is time to look back over your uh, policy and see what you're covered for and to question why this industry can take so much money and be required by all of us to have and to carry when we're having mortgages, mortgages etc. And yet, you know, they can, they can find a loophole to basically deny almost everything except for a catastrophic event. And as, we, as you said in Portobas, they can even find a way to deny that. So... I just wanted to bring that to your listeners' attention. Yeah, I'm glad you did, John. You know, and if your insurance provider is unwilling to take the time to discuss your policy, it might be time for a new provider. Well, that's what I said to him. I said you can bet, you can be bet, betting on a few things. First of all, if you don't have the time, uh, that I said that I did to him, and I said also, you, if that rate moves a penny, you can bet when renewal happens, it won't be with you. 
and uh, and you know so i'm throwing a lump of coal their way uh, from santa's magic sack for the rest of your listeners uh, i hope you have a merry christmas and take care everybody same to you john thanks for the call all right all the best take bye. care bye-bye yeah i mean look the big one about uh, fiona so the province and the insurance bureau have said that they're going to talk about how there can be some policies crafted and premiums associated with protection against storm surge. Because, again, how many people found out the hard way? Now, it was good that the province was able to step up and provide some rebuilding funding for folks who lost. I mean, just imagine, there were some 100 homes in Porto alone that became inhabitable, let alone how many were washed out to sea. I mean, those images will never go away in my mind, just simply extraordinary. So working on that has got to be a priority, no question. But just for the individual homeowner, and even for your insurance on your automobile, I'm going to guess that most people, when they go through it, me included, you go in and you shop for premiums. Because that's what most people are uh, focused on, is how much is it going to cost me? But inside of that conversation, the premium that you might have been quoted from one provider for to another might not even be on the exact same coverage. So... It's hard to be fully educated on every front and every field to ask all of the insightful questions of anything, including insurance companies, but knowing what you've got is probably going to be pretty important given that you may indeed have to turn and file a claim at some point. So, you know, my broker, my insurance provider has been very good to us and we have a good relationship with them and we had some flooding in the basement a few years ago. But maybe ask those questions so you can know what you're getting yourself into before it's too late. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about one person's experience with some of the cancelled WestJet flights, just imagine two or three hundred new Flanders, Labradorians, their family, their children, stranded in Toronto, probably can't get out till Boxing Day. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Sam Senior. You're on the air. Hi, Petty. How are you doing? Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to you. I'm doing decent. I have a cold, but uh, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm here in Newfoundland now, no longer stuck in the airport in Toronto. Uh, that was quite the concert, actually. And uh, I just want to share some of my experiences with you. I know there's been a lot of media attention paid to it, and uh, you're uh, on Beale Sam and other media outlets as well. But I've, uh, I've done a lot of travel in my lifetime, Petty. I've been to a lot of countries, a lot of airports, and I never quite saw the spectacle that I saw in with uh, WestJet at, uh, at Pearson the last number of days. Well, I mean, the stories are unbelievable, and some of the rationale offered by, for instance, in this case, WestJet, contradictory and frustrating, to say the least. Well, I think from my experience from Sunday night until last night, uh, WestJet violated probably four or five clear sections of the ACTR, which is the, you know, the act that pertains to passenger protection rights, uh, and uh, they seem to, the carriers themselves, we always look at WestJet and, and Air Canada, the big carriers, they seem to, to be totally indifferent to federal legislation. And, uh, you know, like the whole idea of leaving people on tarmacs for greater than three hours, the idea of just cancelling flights uh, for for different reasons, uh, mechanical issues, and then not making any attempt to reroute people. Uh, I waited in a lineup two days ago, not just me, all of us from Newfoundland Labrador, right in the, in the same boat no. and we were lined up for seven hours i looked around that lineup and there were small children playing on the floor for seven hours and there were people uh, you know had nothing to drink for seven hours and WestJet never even offered us a glass of water or a bottle of water crazy yeah and uh, this is in the middle of pearson this is not somewhere in an undeveloped country this is in pearson international airport 
And so I got home last night by sheer luck. I uh, my story my story is uh, I was due to fly out on the 22nd, get in St. John's late or early in the morning on the 23rd. So we had reservations confirmed. And we were one of the lucky ones because most people around us had reservations confirmed for Boxing Day, December 26th. So yesterday I got up and I uh, I, I booked. I was at the hotel in the, by the airport, one of the hotels. And I got online and I booked some train tickets to go from the airport basically down to Union Station. And I was going to arrange to meet a gentleman to buy some tickets for the uh, Leafs and Tampa Bay game last night. So I booked the tickets online for the train. I went on the shuttle back to the airport. And I said to my wife, I think I'll pop inside and go upstairs because we're right there and see how things are going today. And I go upstairs and I say to one of the attendants, uh, you know, where's the Newfoundland line? What happened to the Newfoundland line? She said, well, they're all dispersed. We don't know what's going on. And I said, but I was on that flight, so you, you come with me. So she brought me to the front of another line, and within a half hour, I had tickets to come home. If I had not just gone up to her, like just something to do, I was to kill some time on my way downtown to Union Station, I, wouldn't, I, would, I would still be in Toronto. And everybody has, everybody has a different story. Like people I knew well, we shared lunch with them and so on. One lady got on a Porter Air flight and flew to St. John's. Another young man is flying it today from Billy Bishop Airport in downtown Toronto, to St. John's. Another lady is flying later on today from uh, Toronto to Halifax, being picked up by a family member to go to Moncton for Christmas. Everybody's got a different story. And uh, WestJet made no attempt to reach any of us. I never got a call from WestJet first or last. It was just sheer luck that we got on a plane last night. And was most egregious. So I got on a plane last night. I was looking around and said to myself, boy, there's a fair number of empty seats on this plane. Now, keep in mind, Petty, this is a direct flight from Toronto to St. John's last night. And it was pretty well on the same plane, the 737-800 model. So being who I am, being abrasive and so on, I sort of undid my seat, but I walked up and down the plane. And I counted 64 empty seats. And I counted them twice to make sure I counted them right there. I couldn't believe that there were 64, so I said, I'm going to count those again. So I started at the front, and I went down to the back, and there were 64 empty seats, 56 in economy and eight in first-class empty seats on the way to St. John's. Meanwhile... There are no doubt there are Newfoundlanders, Labradorians, or people wanting to come to Newfoundland who are now sitting in, in hotels in Toronto Airport, not getting there until the 26th of December. And so th- was this on Air Canada? This is on WestJet. Okay, because someone just also told me that they flew on Air Canada Flight 328 last night. The flight was half full, which begs the question. WestJet, yeah. of course, wants to keep their customers, but keeping your customers to fly them home on December 26th, as opposed to try to get them on any any aircraft, but any carrier, to get to their destination in an effort to keep them as a customer, looks like they're dropping the proverbial ball. Yeah, I think the person who quoted the Air Canada 328 may have made a mistake. It was actually WestJet 328. Okay, because yeah. uh, I just yeah. looked up Air Canada Flight 328, and they do indeed have one too. He said the okay. flight was half full, nine seats empty just around him. I don't think he walked the aisle like you did to do the head count. <laughs> no, I, no, I count them. Eight in first class, 56 in economy, 64 wow. seats empty. And it's just, so I wish it needs to give us an, an explanation of why, well, well, first of all, what happened, number one. Uh, this is the, I spoke to managers the way I am. I'm pretty abrasive. I don't mind stand up. I can take care of myself. So I said, I'm going to speak to the managers. So I spoke to the managers. He, the manager said, I'm really apologetic. So I don't know what's going on. He said, normally they would put what's called a rescue plane on to get all of your people to your destination. Because if this wasn't one or two stragglers who got lost in the shuffle. We were, t- we were talking about a whole plane load of people who were waiting to get on that plane on Sunday night. And so it was a whole plane load of people, not just one or two here and there. 
So there, but there was, there was no attempt by WestJet to get to what's called a rescue plane. Uh, there was no attempt by WestJet to reverge us with other uh, other carriers. We just did it on our own, and it was quite just accidental. A young couple I met last night uh, at the terminal in Toronto, getting ready to take off, and I met him at the carousel here this morning in St. John's. Uh, a young man, a young woman with two uh, young boys, and they said they just went back to the airport yesterday to get some more vouchers for uh, for food vouchers. And said. Just by going back to get food vouchers, they just locked in to get in four tickets. It shouldn't be a matter of luck. It should be a matter of priority on behalf of the carrier. It's extraordinary stories. Uh, just a quick one. It's a bit of an aside, but, you know, WestJet is probably fair in saying that some of their aircraft and crew were stuck elsewhere, notably Vancouver. Okay, fair enough. The buddy, uh, this story I told off the top, friend of his traveling from Los Angeles to St. John's for the holidays. Uh, one of the first stop in Canada, Vancouver. When they got back on the aircraft for their next leg, I don't know where that was too, but they were on the tarmac for 12 hours. 12 hours. Had two glasses of water, one cookie. The people were getting sick, the anger was boiling over, and there was a cat that got loose that did its business in the aircraft for 12 hours as they sat on the tarmac. Oh, that is unreal. Yeah. That's and, inhumane. And, and, yeah, and, and the, the general legislation clearly states you cannot hold someone on the tarmac in a plane any greater than three hours. That's what the federal legislation says. But you and I take away to ignore federal legislation under any context. But WestJet and Air Canada seem to say, I went over the care regulations, say we'll keep you on a plane for 12 hours, although we know quite well we're only legally allowed to keep you on a plane for three hours. Yeah, I mean, and the argument or the excuse offered there is, well, we didn't have a gate. We didn't have a crew. I mean, when people and the rebound for people wanting to travel and the pent-up demand, it was easy enough to blame it on the federal government. But the airlines were equally to blame here. They didn't have the crews available, yet they, with unmitigated gall, sold us all tickets to fly and then couldn't follow through with their end of the bargain. I gave you my credit card number. I expect a flight. They got me over the holidays, too, or pardon me, over the summer as well. We had a trip planned. I lost three days of my trip because my flight got cancelled. No, 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 it's egregious. It, it, I think it, it has to come to a head somewhere a lot of way. I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a radical, really. So uh, maybe a class action lawsuit, if, even if not successful, will bring attention to this issue. Because I think someone needs to test several things here. They need to test what the liability is or what the obligations are for very large carriers, like Air Canada and WestJet in particular. And if someone also needs to test the legislation. If the federal government is going to institute legislation, federal statutes, which are legal laws, and then they're not going to enforce them, that's a problem. So I've been talking to some lawyers and said, is there a chance that all of us Newfoundlanders and Labradorians who are in this boat since last Sunday can get together and follow a, a, you know, a transaction lawsuit against WestJet in this case? You only need one person to follow a lawsuit, and the rest could join the class action suit. I would love to follow the lawsuit personally. You know, and I, I think whatever, you might have to go to that degree with this to bring it to a head because it's getting to be unbelievable. And it's not just the carriers, they're kind of listed. In the last number of months, I've been to Lisbon Airport, LaGuardia, Gatwick, major international airports, and they flow pretty well. Even outside of the WestJet fiasco and the Air Canada's problems, Toronto International Airport has problems on its own. Sure. Absolutely. It's completely, it's completely different. Like, I've been to Gatwick in the last couple of months. Gatwick, Lisbon, Porto, uh, LaGuardia, big airports and other airports, too. And they, they're functional. You go in the line, you get out the line, it's slow, blah, blah, blah. You go to Toronto and you're two hours in, uh, getting through immigration. You're two hours in the lineup on a good day getting to, the, to, to get your ticket to get on a plane. Like, it's, it's from, I'm just giving my own personal, my own primary experience. There's something 
systemically wrong with the operation of the Toronto Airport. Whenever I can make my connection Halifax, I do. Well, the salaries that they put right now, the, the couriers, this, in this case, WestJet, they're consolidating all their... Oh, yeah. All their, in Western Canada. Yep. And but Halifax has, has less flights than ever before. I flew to London, England, a few months ago, and I was supposed to go to Halifax, and they wrote a major Toronto. Let's put more pressure on Toronto, right? You know? And uh, so, again, it's frustrating, of course. Like, I've lost three days. I'm, I'm lucky to be home now, actually. And, uh, but uh, I'm, what frustrates me is it has nothing to do with me. I could be in Toronto and go to hockey games and go downtown and get a nice hotel, blah, blah, blah. And so, for me, it's not, I don't, you know, I don't have a job to come back to. It's not a big issue. But for young couples who don't have the money to do that, and for someone who's on a schedule, like in the group that we were in, two young couples said, take my luggage out of the line, I'm going back to Winnipeg. Take my luggage out of the line, I'm going back to Edmonton. Take my luggage out of the line, I'm going back to the Yukon. We had a young couple in the lineup. I hope they got home. They were due to get married on December 23rd, and they were told they're going to be on a plane December 26th. Wow. I mean, you're not, you're not talking about the head of the manager. You're not talking about a little incident. Oh, God, I'm, I'm an hour late. I'm, I'm going to miss the, the I'm watching a hockey game. I'm going to be home. I'm going to miss the first period of games. I'm not going to be home watching TV. You're talking to me some serious interruptions in people's lives and serious, and serious costs to people, huge costs to people. Yeah, no, that was my personal experience this past summer. One of the things that we were going to do, we missed because of the bloody flight being uh, cancelled. Uh, Sam, I'm glad you made it home safe. Uh, Merry Christmas, happy holidays to you, you and yours, and thanks for the time. Thank you and your family, Patty, and your listeners as well. God bless. Take good care. Bye-bye. Yeah, take care, buddy. No problem. Uh, uh, break time, but, you know, curiously, again, I admit this all the time, it's hard to know exactly what people want to talk about, but... Doesn't matter if I say it or if you heard anyone else say it. If you think it's a topic of importance, bring it forward yourself. A couple of emails uh, during the most recent break about didn't talk about the mass murder in Vaughan, Ontario. Five people slain over arguments about a condo board. A truly an amazing, tragic story. And the same emailer also pointed out the fact that there's been now eight teenage girls allegedly swarmed, stabbed, killed a 59-year-old homeless man. They've all been uh, charged with murder between the ages of 13 and 16. Teenage girls, that's another wild story. Uh, let's take a break. Reg is there in the queue. He wants to talk about what he heard from Craig Party, who's the PC member for Bonavista, about hospital divergencies. Don't go away. Back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Reg, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. Happy to do it. Uh, I'm uh, just uh, got a bit of a follow-up to uh, what Craig Party's talked about, the diversion in Bonavista. Sure. Uh, okay. I've been here in Bonavista all my life, and I'll just say I'm a senior. And I don't think I've ever seen the hospital actually closed. But anyway, this has been going on for a while now, and I'm sure it's going to keep happening. But I'd like to clarify a couple of things. I don't think that the public really understand what a diversion is, a lot of people. I mean, what's happening in Bonavista right now when a diversion happens is the hospital door is locked. You're in, you can't go into the hospital. So that don't, you know, so people are thinking, oh, well, if I have a heart attack or something, I got to be taking care of or whatever. But that's not the case. If you cut your finger now when you're carving your turkey Christmas and you need stitches, you're going to have to drive to Clarenbaugh. If you got a sick kid who, who needs antibiotics or whatever, you got to drive to Clarenbaugh to see a doctor. And I mean, we're looking at a hour and a half drive under ideal conditions from Bonavista to Clarenbaugh. If we get a winter storm, you could be a day before you get to Clarenbaugh. So I'd, I'd like to put that out there so people really understand what a diversion is because it's not simply 
a, a, a serious problem, a minor problem, turns into a serious problem because you have to travel. So j- just that part. And another thing, Craig brought up about uh, salaries, doctor salaries. Okay, we know for a fact that we've had three doctors who have contacted government uh, basically all summer. They want, to, they want to practice in Bonavista. Vista. We know they want to practice there, and, but they refuse to practice in Bonavista for a reduced salary, which I don't blame them. I don't blame anybody. But the bottom line is, right now, so they refuse to pay them the Category A pay that they would be getting in Clarenville. So right now, Category A pay in Clarenville is, uh, well, like Craig said, Bonavista right now, with the with incentives and the and the last offer, uh, their pay would be seventy seventy percent of what they would be getting as ER doctor in Clarence. So okay, you got that so far? I do. I'm listening. Okay, so right now we know the numbers. So we haven't had a, a doctor on on uh, uh, on the contract in Bonavista since November past. So since then, everything is locum coverage. We have locums coming here from as far away as Vancouver. We had one a couple of weeks ago from Vancouver. A 24-hour shift for a locum in Bonavista is costing the provincial government approximately probably $5,000, and we're being very conservative. Now, we're talking about a flight, rental cars, meals, accommodations in Bonavista, which is a day I have the hospital has a house, but... They got to do all the housekeeping, everything else. So, so you multiply that three hundred sixty-five days by five thousand dollars is one million eight hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars. And they are saying they refusing to pay three doctors a category A pay who will come into Bonavista, stabilize our healthcare, and can cover the twenty-four hour shifts. They, they're going to devise a schedule where they're going to get time off like they should have and everything else. Well, so the government can justify spending almost $2 million, but, and there's no way that they're going to pay each one of those doctors six or $700,000. I mean, it's not, it's not practical. No, the cost comparisons are absolutely fair, Reg, in my personal opinion, because for folks in one region or another, you'd simply want the coverage. Whether it be exactly. locum or full-time, but if it's advantageous for it to cost less and have someone per, uh, hired permanently in one spot or another, obviously that's the best thing. I'm just going to guess that some of the issues regarding being willing to pay a locum doctor more is precedent-setting for someone to be permanent locally hired. So it makes no sense, but because if you add up locums over the course of the year, regardless of where we're talking in the province, whether it be as nurses or doctors, versus what it would cost to have some of the 600 nursing vacancies filled, some of the 125,000 people without a family doctor filled, some of the wait times for various specialists, I guarantee you, to pay more to the local permanent hires would come out in the wash over the course of 12, 24, 36 months ahead of the game. So I just never really quite understood that. No, nobody do. And I mean, the bottom line is, See, Patty, if you're, if you're tr- truly trying, trying to recruit a doctor, I mean, because I don't think for one minute that this provincial government we have here now are trying to recruit doctors for rural employment, not only Bonavista, Vista, because if you call anybody, it, it, like forget doctors, 
If you call a plumber and you say, okay, if you come down to this, we'll pay you 10 bucks an hour, but you can stay in Clarendon, we'll give you 20. So, I mean, where are they going to stay? It is not practical what they're doing. And there's no way possible you're going to recruit people, especially this day and age where there's so much demand for doctors. How are you going to recruit people if you're the one paying the lowest wage? I mean, no. it's impossible. Yeah, now, I mean, I'll add to it. If there's a very close disparity in pay, but you get a more flexible opportunity in the pay, the place paying a slightly less, maybe that's what suits your fancy and fits your needs, your life circumstance yes. a bit better. But when it's a big gap, there's never going to be contracts that overcome 30%, you know, so... No, that's not, not going to happen. That's and, why... And not only that, Patty, you got the issue with, like, if you bring one doctor in, Okay, within six months, they thought it's going to be burned out. They thought his, co- his coverage is 24-7, basically, right? The only chance they thought they was getting a break then is if they get a local to come in or the ER gets covered by a nurse practitioner or whatever. But if you, with this group that we've talked to here, and those people have talked to the government. They've talked to Tom Osborne. We've talked to Tom Osborne. They've talked to the premier. they put their case out there. But nobody wants to move. It's just... I think it's just, and money is not an issue. If you're going to spend two million when you can be spending uh, how much, uh, seven or eight hundred thousand dollars? Like if you pay them two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, I don't think there's anybody in category A getting two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year like in Clarenceville. So, uh, so you pay seven hundred fifty thousand dollars as opposed to two million dollars. I mean, what's what's the problem? <laughs> it's a fair question, right? What is the yeah. problem? I hear you. Yeah. You know, on that is front, it a power struggle is it? You know, well, partially, know. partially. Yeah, but in the meantime, when, when this power struggle is going on, so the the government of the day is picking who's you know they're deciding who's going to live and who's going to die. So if you're in ruin of land right now, what well, tough titty for you? You're out there. I'm sorry, we we're not putting a doctor there anymore. I mean, it's crazy what's going on. Reg, I appreciate the time. Uh, thanks for calling this morning. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays to you and yours. And the same to you and your family and all your listeners. Thanks, Reg. I hope and nobody gets sick over the holidays. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Okay, bye. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, if I could shake this cold, I'll be way better off. Uh, just a friendly reminder, school-aged children in the K-12 system are being dismissed today for the holidays at lunchtime. So it's going to be really busy out there. So if you've got to do something today, maybe just avoid that one hour from 12 to 1 while we get some of that traffic off the road, and especially in the school zone. So early dismissal today as they get ready for the holiday season. Time for the news. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Halapool referendum, and Jason Sullivan has thrown his hat in the ring to be the next president of the FFAW. He's in the queue, too. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Uh, Let's go. Line number three. Good morning, Greg Janes. You're on the air. Hi, good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks for asking. How about you? Good, thank you. I'd like to talk about the the ongoing referendum that's happening right now with Halibut First Nation, which is to reinstate the uh, military and RCMP back into the ban. Go right ahead, sir. And, uh, yeah, I'd just like to get the word out that uh, voting is ongoing and um, that we have till 12 noon tomorrow to vote. And it's important that all membership vote on this because we want to send not only a yes vote to the federal government, 
but we want to send a clear message that Halibut First Nation is engaged in its membership, and they want to continue talks to get the other group in, which is the Federation of Newfoundland Indians that were wrongly disqualified. Greg, talk us through the timeline, because this has been a convoluted process from day one. When were those members excluded? Right from the get-go uh, or midstream? I can't remember. Midstream, because uh, take personally myself, now I had my status for nine years. And because I was a member of the Canadian Armed Forces, and I couldn't connect to a community at the time because of my service, I got excluded for six points for community connection. Now, we went back to them and said, wait, now, there's a mistake here, because when we join the military, we don't surrender our ordinary residency. When you join the military in RCMP, you are afforded certain rights, and those certain rights are the right to vote in your own district, uh, which mine was Beer and Bay St. George, now Long Range Mountains. And um, we are afforded hunting rights. Uh, we get to come back and hunt and fish, just like the regular um, people off the province does. And midstream of that, when the supplemental agreement came in, that we were taken out of that fold. Uh, we, we, couldn't, uh, we, we couldn't get a community connection. Um, you know, there was many veterans and RCMP officers that lost their status throughout this process. And, and, and my children lost their status throughout this pro- process as well, which is very important. Now we have an opportunity to get those people back in, to be reinstated as, as founding members like they rightfully should. Now we started out four years ago with a meeting with Ms. Minister O'Regan, the Minister of Veterans Affairs at the time, which we thought was very productive um, he gained. A, he gave us a listening ear. Um, went over schedule, um, you know. Uh, but we thought we came away very positive. But here we are, four years later, and um, and the referendum is happening right now. And we need all membership to vote on this. We just don't need a couple hundred turnout and uh, and say yay or nay. But we need to send a strong message because if this goes south, if the membership votes no to reinstate veterans and RCMP officers that it will send a clear message to the federal government that Halibu does not want to discuss membership whatsoever. And there will be no, there will be no road to uh, negotiations. Um, they will just walk away. We know that. The exclusion of the military members is extremely confusing, given all the rights afforded to them as just members of the armed forces, you know, whether they be abroad or at their one station or another, at Pepperell or wherever, to be able to vote in their own home district. How can that possibly be, uh, how can that possibly jive with the fact they've been excluded for voting in this front or being a member in this front? It just doesn't make any sense. Well, that's our point that, that was being that uh, we thought that this was uh, uh, a mistake, an oversight, and we thought that it should be corrected. Minister Reagan at the time thought that, yes, it should be uh, corrected. But uh, there we are, uh, you know, dragging our uh, feet through the sand. And uh, four years later, you know, we have an opportunity to get back in again and do the work on the inside that uh, to get the other membership in, in as well. So um, we, we don't know, like, uh, we don't know how we got in this situation. It was just how the supplement agreement was written to exclude and not to include. What's the process for voting, Greg? Voters, uh, voting process is either you will receive an email. You can log into your GNU 
um, a site and vote online. Uh, many people are having problems with uh, broken links, so there is a um, there is a uh, help desk number, um, and you can also vote by phone uh, by calling the uh, when you get your voting package. A lot of people hasn't received the voting package yet, but um, if you haven't and you're a member of Halibu First Nation, you can call the one eight 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 two eight one eight six eight three number, which is the help desk, and they'll line you up and get your vote in. Can you give me that number one more time? I couldn't find my pen. It is one eight 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 two eight one right eight six eight three. Okay, I'll have it on hand if anyone calls about it. Uh, Greg, thanks for your time. Anything else before we say goodbye this morning? No, absolutely. Uh, thank you for your time. Um, just I want to get the members uh, membership out there to vote. Uh, it's very important that they do so. Please support our veterans and our CMP officers. Thanks for this, Greg. Appreciate it. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. All right, right, bye-bye. Let's keep rolling. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to a gentleman who would like to be the next president at the FFAW Unifor. That's Jason Sullivan. Good morning, Jason. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Best kind, you? Oh, by not bad. Listen. Fighting at the cold. Fighting at the cold. Oh, I got it. I cannot shake it. It's just driving me. Uh, Before we get into your candidacy... I still think there's many people, including me, just a little bit confused with exactly who's eligible, A, to vote, B, to run. Uh, Well, I think nearly everyone's confused by this, but uh, eligible to run is a member in good standing of the FFAW, and uh, that would mean your fees were paid up to date in 2021. So then you would have got a card in the mail, I think, in August or September, saying you're a member of good standing. Um. Eligible to vote is uh, is just the inshore council. So that's roughly 60 people, uh, I think because there's some vacancies and stuff like that. So it's uh, it's challenging to campaign because, um, first of all, there's there's no uh, list or, you, you know, you got a list online, but it's just the names. You don't got no contact information. So luckily I've got, uh, um, you know, a pretty big uh, Facebook group, and uh, I posted the pictures online last night and asked for people to private message me the number. So I'm collecting them up pretty good. And uh, but again, yes, it's very challenging, and uh, it's not a lot of time. Simply because if you have to make 60 phone calls, you know, at a half hour each, even it's uh, it's 30 hours. So <laughs> with Christmas and everything else, it's uh, it's challenging. But um, unfortunately, uh, I think. Um, a position of this size, or even the secretary treasurer, for that matter, should be going back to the general membership. And hopefully, if I get elected, we can we can get that changed in the constitution. You know, in some form, the FFAW is kind of making the point that you and others have made over the years about representation. So, if only the inshore council can vote for the next president, doesn't that kind of scream that the FFA the FFAW have been serving too many distinctly different groups inside the one union, inshore harvesters, some working in the offshore, some working in the plants. So how could it possibly be that if I'm impacted as an uh, offshore harvester and or in the plant, I have no say in the next president, yet that person is going to represent my needs? It's kind of a contradiction that they're, it's an unforced or an unforced error by the FFAW. Yeah, I, I I believe so too. I think uh, I think it like I said, it's got to go to general membership. Unfortunately, it's too late. And unfortunately, the previous people there have been pretty 
you know, steadfast against change. Uh, they don't want to do something different. They think what they're doing is great. But you know what? Uh, democracy dies in darkness. And uh, you know, if we don't get this fixed, uh, and this is a pretty simple thing, I mean, people need to have a voice. And when it's a union that, like you said, represents such a vast uh, <laughs> um, uh, industries, I mean, there's people on all sides of stuff here. And, uh, you know, it's got to be open and transparent as uh, as it can be, and um, like I said, right, right off the bat, I mean, we, we've got to explore how uh, people can become more involved. Like right now, I mean, I'm just basically asking the membership, you know, to contact your rep or whoever your rep is and let your thoughts be known of who you'd like to see as president because at the end of the day, they're, they're the these inshore council members are representing um, those people, and, uh, you know, whether they agree with it or not, it's the vast majority of people thinks that a certain individual should be president. I mean, that's who should, they should side with. And, uh, um, you know, I have no doubts in my mind that it was a general election. I'd win. I'd, I'd map the floor with him. But um, this is going to be tough because a lot of the inshore council have been there, like Greg Pretty, since the beginning, since before I was born. And, uh, you know, they've got certain ways they think. And, and, uh, and that's so I'm hoping to reach out to them all and maybe change their minds or change and, and offer them a different option and, and like change the, the culture out there in one sense to make things more open and keep people up to speed on things. Uh, you know, that's the biggest part of all this. I mean, you know, again, right off the bat, I mean, when we look at this election, you know, three or four hours after the president resigned, they endorsed another candidate two weeks before before the nominations even opened. And not all the inshore council did that. It was just a small group of people. And uh, I, I can tell you for a fact, a lot of the inshore council, the remaining inshore council, feel pretty slighted by that, right? Jason, last one maybe before I have to go. Do you think that your position as a vocal opponent of the union, as member of FishNL, or your current position as the president of CNL, do you think that hurts you or helps you? I don't know. I like... I like uh, first of all, I've took a leave of absence from my president of CNA in my position as president there. And uh, But uh, yes, I, I understand what you're saying. But you know what? I, I'm not going in there to tear down the FFAW. I want to just change it for the better for everyone, for the betterment of everyone. I mean, the number of people representing the plans reach out to me. And I mean, they're pretty frustrated over the years, too. They're just a little bit above minimum wage here. And, you know, I, I know one person in particular told me their collective agreement is a company contract, not a union contract. And, uh, and, you know, they, they, they want to see change, too. I mean, we're de- you're basically the only union out there that doesn't offer his membership any sort of benefits or anything like that. I mean, and that, that's got to be fixed and, expl- and explored. And it should be an option if, if a member wants to pl- have benefits uh, through it. They should have it. If the staff can have them, I think everyone should have them. And I certainly won't be having any benefits uh, out there unless, uh, unless everyone gets them. I, I don't believe in that. I appreciate the time. Anything else you'd like to say before I have to run? No, just again, if you're if you're listening and you're a part of the FFAW and you know who your rep is, just reach out to them. If you want to see change, you got to reach out to them, give them a nudge, and to, you know that this is what you want. If, if we stay quiet, things are going to stay the same, and we've got, you know, probably the most challenging times in the last few decades facing us this spring with with market conditions and stuff. And we need a new approach. We don't need the same old, same old, and putting a bandaid on it. I mean. We need someone here that has long-term vision, not someone that's going to roll in for 18 months and 
and try to set someone else up to take over. We want someone long term and uh, someone that has, uh, you know, wants to invest their future in the fishery. Appreciate the time. Good luck, Jason. Thanks, buddy. Take care. Have a Merry Christmas, Patty. You, you too. Pr- appreciate that. Same to you and your family. That's Jason Sullivan. He wants to be the president of the FFAW. Time for a break. When we come back, the Liberal member for Burgio Lapoil. He's the Minister of Industry, Energy and Technology. That's Andrew Parsons. Don't go away. Uh, welcome back to the programme. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Burgio Lapoil. He's the Minister of Industry, Energy and Technology. Andrew Parsons. Minister Parsons, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad, I suppose, beyond this bloody cold. Oh, yeah. Well, at least, you know, I saw the sunshine today, which was uh, a rare occurrence. So, you know, I'm taking some optimism out of that. Yeah, I'll go with that one as well. <laughs> okay, let's go right to the headline of the morning uh, regarding the province's Privacy and Information Commissioner, of course, Michael Harvey, uh, instructing your department to do a secondary search for records related to access to information requests. Where are we? I'll be quite honest, I don't know, because the way ATIP goes, I'm generally not involved in it. I wouldn't know when a request comes in. I wouldn't know when it comes out. Uh, any instructions we get from our ATIP coordinator, I would follow them and pass that along. So, you know, this is not, in this case, I think the the reality, as I understand, is that we've put information out. They've come back and said, you need to find more. There'll be another search done. But whether what that turns out. I can't even tell you what the request is about. That's how little I know about it or am involved in the ATIP because the next thing you know, the flip side is just say you're in there controlling and withholding information. That's why it's sort of arm's length from my role. But as the minister responsible, when that instruction is given by the province's privacy commissioner, do you simply echo that and direct your team to provide whatever secondary search looks like, regardless of the issue? The way I see it, there's look, there's legislation that is enacted. We were a big part of that, and absolutely, you know, we would say to our team, look, let's let's have another go around here and see if there's anything that wasn't disclosed. Uh, going to put out what we can. Now, there's some information, quite frankly, we're not going to we're not going to put out there because if it's going to complicate or ruin commercial sensitivity or ruin uh, our opportunities, I mean, I'm not going to play a game of cards and show the other side what the cards are. I mean, that's not in the best interest of the province, but the ATIP actually allows for that. They say quite clearly you shouldn't put that out. So sometimes it's a case of trying to ensure that all the releasable information is put out there, and if they got to do a second go-around to make sure it comes out, I've got no problem with that. Okay. You know, I mean, commercial sensitivity is proprietary information that may indeed see us get less in the end. I don't think anybody wants that. But, you know, comprehensive access to information and reply to is a good thing, and we all, I think, would agree on that. And the other thing, too, I just put out, I mean, this department, as you can imagine, when you look at the sheer number that come in, it's probably greater, I'd say, than, you know, the majority of other Departments. We are one of the highest requested departments. So when you look at it in its entirety, overall, we've got a pretty good batting average of getting responses in, out, no issue. So when one comes up, yeah, we'll be responsible. But overall, it's a pretty good team there doing this work every day, and nobody hears about it. Let's look at the industry uh, in full. So at one point, there was about 3.8 million hectares of land across the province that were was being considered. 73 wind projects, 31 companies. When it all came out in the wash, it was 1.66 million hectares, I believe is the number. That's about three times the size of Prince Edward Island. Are all of these projects now being considered for export? So right now, what we've sort of geared our industry around is the immediate need, which is export-related. Right now, when it comes to hydrogen slash ammonia, that demand is not there. 
And I think you're seeing other jurisdictions, particularly Nova Scotia, that's where they are geared as well. So we've got, you know, the Germanys of the world and other jurisdictions saying we need, you know, we, we have an over-reliance on energy sources that we cannot rely on. We need that. So that's where we are. We don't know. Uh, quite frankly, we don't know how much energy we can absorb into the grid. That's going to come. That's n- that's not something that's foreign to us or we aren't considering. Plus the fact that part of what's not truly being considered here now but is something we're working on is heavy industrial users and the opportunity to self-generate for their own demand and the growth that they want to sustain. So, yes, right now the land that we've got out, while it's not limited, we'll look at it. The reality is most of these viable projects right now that will be looked at in this first round are for export purposes. Do any of those projects propose what we would call net metering, generation for their own needs but then selling back to the grid? No, that's not something we're looking at uh, now. So those projects, as they come in, probably wouldn't have as high a grade uh, when we do the, the, the grading of them on a number of different levels. They wouldn't have as high a grade because we don't know exactly what the need is, where we're going to put it, what the capacity is. That's coming, but right now the stronger proponents, the ones that will uh, – we'll say be more primarily be looked at are going to be those that are gearing up to uh, take wind, generate hydrogen, and get ready to export. The original package that included uh, 3.8 million hectares or consideration of 3.8 million hectares down to 1.66. I know it's about environmental sensitivities and otherwise and watersheds and access to mining uh, fines and whatnot, but the Great Northern Peninsula left out in the in the second map that was released. Was there anything in particular that saw that part of the province left out, or were there any applications, period, for the GNP? So two issues there, and don't get me wrong, that that was an issue that was brought to me on a couple occasions, once by the MHA for the area. But the reality is all the land that was identified, the 3.8, primarily – was for other places. There was only one request for that area, and it fell into one of these zones that was screened out when we did the departmental and agency review that went from it from having, say, you know, 3.8 down to 1.6. So you also notice there's very little in Labrador because they are not there's too much that has to be done to put them in the first round. Primarily, when it comes to Labrador, we have to have more intensive negotiations with our indigenous governments and leaders. So there's going to be wind opportunities in the Great Northern Peninsula. There will be in Labrador, and there will be in other areas uh, that aren't in the first round. Uh, So there's nothing, I guess, suspect or anything like that, but there wasn't a lot of interest for that area. Most of the interest you'll see is in that 1.6 area. Are all of the projects being considered all under land lease? There's no purchase of crown land in the offing? No. So right now, whatever comes in by March 3rd, there's no crown grants coming out of this. It's only going to be crown lease with conditions, similar to other projects. I mean, it has to be for that defined purpose. So no one needs to worry. It's a good fear. I'm glad that is one we consider because we did hear it. We're not handing land out under one purpose, and it's going to be used for something else that's not on. Okay. The fiscal framework, because the business model that's between the businesses and their uh, end customer, which apparently is not me, which is a good thing, and no provincial money, still that's the position the government takes? Absolutely. So a couple things to point out there. In most other places, and this is, you know, the truth in all the jurisdictional scans, when they've moved this way in terms of wind, it's been for their own greening of their grid. That's not where we are. We're talking about economic development. Uh, In most places, they have had to be subsidized. We are not subsidizing this. So I've had some people compare this to, say, Muskrat Falls or something else. No, there's no public money going into this. But on the other side of it, when this fiscal framework 
comes out, we have had to factor in what can the industry sustain in getting set up. We don't want to price ourselves completely out of the market and make it so expensive that no one bothers to come here and they go to uh, Louisiana, they go to Nova Scotia, they go to some other jurisdiction. So while we're not putting anything in, we're not going to make it so expensive that people just bypass us completely. That's the balance we've been trying to find. Uh, I'll tell you, the fiscal framework is essentially done. It is essentially done. But given the fact that we had no other precedent to look at, there's only one other place in the world that has a hydrogen framework, and that's over in the Middle East. We've we've sort of measured and measured and then measured again before we cut. So I think if it wasn't for the fact that it's Christmas and we wanted to do another round of consultation, we could probably have it out this month. As it stands, I'm thinking uh, before the middle of January. Does that include uh, a laddering of royalties of, you know, X this year, X times two, year five, or down the line? Because expensive is a moving target. So what I'm going to say to you is that I cannot say, I'm not going to say that stuff to you right now before we put it out. Had to try. But, but, uh, what you're saying is absolutely something that has been and is being considered. I, like, I mean, one of the things here is there's so much uncertainty. There's so many variables that to anybody who says that they know where we're going to be in 24 months, 48 months, 10 years, uh, Nobody knows that for sure. And I think we all live with the ghost of what could have been with the Upper Churchill. So that's been on our mind every single meeting. A couple of quick ones before I'm already late for the news. It's the business surrounding rush. People talk about getting in on the bottom floor, you know, being part, uh, being ahead of the curve on this one. But we don't have a good track record on the rush process. Whether it be expropriating a paper mill and all of a sudden we had a big NAFTA penalty and fine that had to be paid by that example was the federal government. So... What are you doing to ensure the rush doesn't lead us down the garden path, which it has almost every single time in the past? Absolutely, we get that. I mean, a couple things I would point out. I mean, when you talk about the expropriation, I think that was in a matter of hours. In this case, we've put in thousands of hours of, you know, research and, you know, trying to figure this out. Now, I don't, I know that doesn't give everybody a lot of comfort, but we've considered that. We're trying to find that balance. If we take our time and sit back here, it's going to pass us by. And I, I use something as a bit of context. I'm getting criticized for taking a year to do this, saying it's too fast. Nova Scotia, and we're giving companies about three months or so to get their bids in. Nova Scotia gave companies two weeks to make a proposal, and their environmental assessment is going to take 50 days. So for anybody who says we're moving too fast, well, you realize one of our prime competitors is expediting it and moving a hell of a lot faster than us. We're trying to find that right balance between moving fast because the demand is there, but at the same time knowing that, yes, we've got a pretty crappy track record of trying to get things done quickly and getting screwed over. Two very quick ones. The concept that I've been bringing forward is we don't know much about hydrogen. Do you think the fiscal framework ensures that there's a quote-unquote something and something real in it for us? Yes. Next one. Muskrat Falls, all of the issues regarding the Labrador Island Link, Soldier's Pond, and what have you. You know, there's some thoughts as extreme as full abandonment, but what do we know about the testing? The 17th quarterly report from Liberty is a bit more bullish than they have been in the past, specifically about the Labrador Island Link. Are you in the same boat as Liberty thinking that we are approaching a solution? Because if not, that project is as cursed as anything that's ever been created. Boy, it's, there's days when it's hard not to feel that it's cursed, but I take solace in the fact that, look, I put a lot of trust into 
people like Jennifer Williams and Rob Collett and people like that. They've done good work, uh, good work in terms of what has been put on them. We've come too far to just, I think, go down the abandonment road. Uh, we've done quite well. I mean, the, the, the link has worked at various points this year, and nobody knows about it. But when it hit that testing, obviously it caused a trip. We need to get there. So, no, I'm not at the abandonment point. Uh, but to say that it hasn't crossed my mind or been put to my attention would also not be the case. So I think there's, I think there's still a very strong possibility of success. And I'll listen to the advice of experts around me, uh, but I'm also not someone who's going to say "damn the torpedoes" and just bull on here because that's never done us well. I wish we had more time. Maybe sometime early in the new year, we'll have you back on to talk we about the talk new about those critical minerals. I gave you a shout out yesterday. Oh, did you? Listen, I'm, I'm all about it. Between the critical minerals and the new innovation hub, they're the next two things on my list, and I hope to get you back early in the new year to discuss. Listen, have yourself a wonderful Christmas. Uh, be safe, and we'll definitely talk early on, sir. Thank you, Minister Parsons. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right, time for the news. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Hey, welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Joyce, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? I know you're not feeling too well. Sorry to hear about that. I'll be best kind. Yeah, I think you will, too. I'd like to have my say before you pipe in, if you don't mind. Okay. Okay. Our country is usually called Canada. To me, it's called China-da. Why is that? Uh, because Trudeau puts on a good act. He and China are so tight, it's unreal, and people don't see it. He's a liar. You can't believe a word he says. Anyway, let me finish, please. Uh... Anyway, as for the guns, he wants to take the rifles and the shotguns and whatever. And in the next breath, he's saying, but there'll be lots of guns out there that you can buy, like rifles and that. But, hey, a gun is a gun is a gun. Like, the man has no common sense. No, a gun is a gun is a gun is not true. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Well, if you go buy another rifle, I'm not talking about those uh, crazy guns where you could shoot 100 people or whatever. I'm talking about rifles for hunting. Yeah, some of that bill doesn't make any sense. Uh, I agree with that. It doesn't. Uh, but the issue regarding China, <laughs> I know that people love that as part of their greatest hits package. But, I mean, the country just uh, kicked China out of the country regarding their investment in critical mineral companies. That's three of them. So there's a good step in the right direction. No, uh, no. Listen to this now. Oh, I see. Uh, okay. In uh, the States, they kicked out this company for fraud and every other crooked thing. Trudeau has hired him to work with the police here in Canada. Now, why would he do that if he knows they're criminals? Because you know why? He's a criminal, too. And... What crime has he committed, though? I'm sorry. <clears throat> what crime? Yeah. He lies through his teeth, Patty. He's been caught so many times in lies. It's unreal. And I'm sure you're not a stupid man, and you must have heard some of it. No, I mean, I've, I've heard him, and I know about the ethics violations, and I've heard him lie. But again, I guess the question is, what crime has he actually committed? Because politicians and their relationship with the truth is questionable at, at the best of times. Yes, and they're all like it. Not, mo not all of them. I can't put them all into one pot. There's some good ones out sure there. Sure there are, yeah. But anyway, I don't trust Trudeau as far as I could kick him. Um, as for uh, the respiratory illnesses that are on the go, they're caused by the needles. Now, people out there might think, oh, she's crazy. Well, fine, let them think it, but I want to have my say. 
They're killing the children. Think before you give your children a needle. They're making the children sick, and everything is in chaos in this country because of the government. They plan to depopulate the world. There's a lot coming oh, down man. the pipes, and if people don't speak up, they will take all of our rights from us. People are dropping like flies, taking people's land. It's all in the plan. We will own nothing when they're finished with us. The electric on, cars Jess. have coal in the batteries or whatever the hell they're using no, in they it. No, they don't. Well, hey, it's been known. It's, it's been not said. Known. It was even said by the government, and it was a slip up. No. Oh yes, yes, yes. And so, uh, well, anyway, I'm, but for Joyce, where do you get the information that? the COVID vaccine is the root of all of these evils, especially when we talk about... I know a lot of people who have just dropped dead for no reason. I know lots of people who almost went blind as soon as they got the needle. I know of a nurse who was all for the needle, and she's a granddaughter to my sister, and they thought they were going to lose her. She was that bad when she, she was all for getting the needles. She was dead set against people not getting it. But now she wouldn't take it. She said she quit her job first. Anyway, that's my take out. And my brother had it, and he went to work. And as soon as he got to work, he thought he was going blind. All he had to see out of his eyes was two pinholes. And he said he'd never take another shot. He got the fight of his life. He had a job to walk across where he worked to go sit down. What's interesting inside all of that, though, is there's been somewhere in the neighborhood of 13 billion COVID vaccines administered worldwide. And if what you say is true, we should be talking about tens or hundreds of millions of people who have dropped dead, and it's simply not true. And yeah, then, I heard you say earlier this morning that there's so many people dying and, like, you can't get a handle on it. Why? Well, I'm telling you why. But, I mean, you don't have to believe me. You can think I don't. Easy. That's fine. Anybody up there can think the same thing. And uh, let's see. Uh, Fury is going to ruin Newfoundland with the windmills. I can guarantee you that. Based on what? Based on everything. Animals, whatever. I mean, you're going to have these things everywhere. Uh, and you can't trust the word they said. That guy you had on just then, he's responsible for overseeing whatever oh he didn't have the answers he didn't know anything i mean that's his job to know everything well his response to that that was about the access to information request uh and you know a couple of confusing things for me with vaccines and COVID itself is in one hand people like yourself i guess are telling me that it's nothing but a cold but in the next breath you're talking about it's it's aimed it's a bio lethal bioweapon funded and distributed by Tony Fauci to depopulate the world. So it can't be both. That that's where I, f- I just don't quite understand anyway, some of these extreme positions. Give it another year and everybody's going to understand what's going on. The government is just starting on us. Trudeau got us in such a dark hole. We're not coming out and they're taking all our rights. Any rights you got, they're going down the tubes and they don't care who dies. What rights have you lost? Oh come on. If somebody speaks out against Trudeau, they're out of a job, the Liberals. That's not true. Anyway, okay. Well, it's not, Joyce. I mean, some of these things have to be based in what's going on in the world. I I criticized the Trudeau government ever since they got elected in 2015. I'm still here. I know you're still here. Lucky you, that's all I've got to say. Anyway, some people can't feed themselves. They're starving and they're freezing, and we know that, don't we? And they got nothing. 
and they'll lose everything to people who have homes, mortgages, truck payments, uh, quad payments, uh, and they keep raising the interest rates. They're not going to be able to pay for their stuff. They're going to lose it all. And, oh, this is to help, you know, uh, stabilize bull, bull crap. Anyway, China and Trudeau, like I I said, they're very tight. You'll see I'm right. In another year, it's all going to come down to place. They're taking people's land. you got no rights. If you want the land, you got to buy it back, da-da-da. What do you think? Everybody's rich. And Trudeau takes all our guns and our rifles, which is our right. Like I said, he's taking all our rights. If he wants to take those machine guns or Uzis or whatever they are, go ahead and take them. Because they do kill a lot of people, sure. and there's a lot of crazies on the go, as the government says. And, of course, the government says 95% of us or whatever. We're all nuts anyway, and so is the government. So, Anyway, I'm hoping this will enlighten some people to think twice before they get their kids vaccinated, because this respiratory illness is being caused by those needles. And remarkable how some of those children aren't even old enough and have never been vaccinated, but yet they got it anyway. Well, hey, you get vaccinated and you get COVID anyway, so what's the point? Fair enough, Joyce. Appreciate the time. Every time you've got to face the public for something, he gets sick or he's out of the country. You can't pin him down. They ask questions. If you ask questions, they run around in circles, and they they just don't answer the questions because he feels he's above everybody. He's got a silver spoon in his middle, a gold one. But he can enjoy a turkey dinner and everything that goes with it. And he's rotten with money and spoiled rotten. And there's people that won't have Christmas dinner, won't have a bite to eat. They'll be cold. You know what I'm saying? They'll lose. Yes, I know. I hear those stories all the time, as you know. Yeah. Uh, appreciate the time. I'm late for the break. Have a good Christmas, despite listen, Trudeau. You, listen, you too, you and yours, and I hope you get well soon. So Merry Christmas. Thanks, Joyce. Happy New Year to all the crew, all the people out there, the ones that are suffering. You're, I don't forget you. I think about it all the time. Thank you, Joyce. All right. You okay. have a nice day. You bye. Too. Bye-bye. Uh, let's take that break. Welcome back to the show, and let us go. Line number one, Scott, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Thanks for taking the call. I just want to point out to people like Joyce that knowledge has never been known to enter the brain through an open mouth, and she needs to do more listening than talking. And um, if you have a couple of minutes at the end of the show, you used to play a tune, uh, try the Bellamy Brothers' Let Your Love Flow. That's all I got to say. <laughs> it's uh, it's appropriate. Uh Look, people can think what they want and say what they want uh, on this program. You know, sometimes I think it would be more helpful if it came in the form of, you know, back and forth, uh, even in the form of conversation. I don't need to debate every single call on every single issue. But uh, I did have my good buddy Ivan, who I think is up in Labrador, respond to me and say, uh, she's a hell of a lot smarter than you. (laughs) She she may very well be on some fronts. But anyway, I wish Joyce nothing but the best. And, you know, the, the visceral... Hatred for certain politicians is really quite something. I've been doing this kind of work for a long time now, and it's always been that distrust and mistrust and, you know, some dislike, maybe loathe, possibly some hate, but now it's off the charts. It's just wild. It's too scary, and uh, it's not the time of the year to be uh, thinking about things like that, and we should take our, our count our blessings and be happy for them. Fair ball. I uh, appreciate the time, Scott. I wish you and, your, you and yours the best of the season. As well, you. Thanks, now. Thanks, Scott. Bye-bye. 
Uh, let's keep going. Line number two. Rick, you're on the air. Uh, is that you, Pat? That would be me. Okay, listen, I want to comment on that lady too, right? I, I call in every now and then, but uh, sometimes i got a big concern. I know that you got to put up with that stuff, but uh, is there any way you can limit to the rhetoric? I mean, she, and especially your buddy you set up in Labrador said she's a lot smarter than you. People say that about Trump. She sounds like she's a female Trump to me. Uh, only their logic is working. Nobody else is not even going fear on the game. You know what I mean? And, and then she lambasting the, 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 the Trudeau. I don't know where that came from. I mean, he's trying his best. I mean, he's a, he, God. I mean, everybody gets in after nobody wants to do anything. They're garbage. Get them out. I mean, the, the economy is in a hard situation. So we can't do nothing about those uh, those people like Bruno that just, man, it's just, it gets to you after a while, right? What do you think? Well, I mean, sometimes it can be uh, a lot to handle. Uh, the business, like, I don't care if anybody likes or loathes Trudeau. That has no bearing on how I feel or think or talk or handle this program. Like, I, that's, yeah. that's just not my concern. It's, you know, whether it be your criticisms of the Polyabs or the Sings or Elizabeth May or Justin Trudeau or Christopher Freeland or Joe Biden or Donald as long as some of it is based on what's actually happening versus some of the other type of stuff that we hear uh, offered as a criticism, it, it's just all a little bit wild. And, you know, I think we've learned a lot about ourselves and a lot about humankind and a lot about society yeah. here in the last two and a half years, and a lot of it's not great. Yeah. I'll agree with you, I'll agree, but it's just something, it's nice to when you listen to Paddy, but when you hear so much negative, and they're basing stuff, that that's, it's just rhetoric, you know what I mean? Yeah. Is what I'm saying, right? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I, I just wanted to get my two cents word in there, Paddy, and you have a good day. The same to you. Thanks a lot, Rick. Bye-bye. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, and again, it does not matter to me if you like or love the Prime Minister. It just doesn't even register in my mind because that has no pertinence on how we try to handle the program. And the whole bit about you can't criticize and you're fired, well, boy, I don't know. They mustn't tune into this show, even though I know they do. We hear from federal departments all the time. Anyway, good stuff-ish. Uh, We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline at vocm.com. And, of course, the best is when you take the opportunity to pick up the phone and give us a shout. Now, we've only got two shows left in this calendar year before we take our holiday break. I'm going to encourage you uh, for the next couple of days to talk about the big issues of the day, questions, concerns, and criticisms, one industry or another. But also, there's lots of good things that we can pepper the show with maybe some anticipation for the holidays or any type of Christmas wish you'd like to offer to those who are unable to get home, whether it be family and friends living elsewhere in the country or around the world. We'll try to help uh, share that message of good tidings on your behalf here on this program. All right. Good show today. <laughs> Appreciate the support the program gets. All of the callers, listeners, emailers, and tweeters, you're all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Paddy Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.